You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 462. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 2C at the Fister Hotel in Milwaukee. Today's show is recorded on the 25th of February, 2021. In today's episode, Part of United Airlines jet blows apart, raining debris on a town near the Denver airport. A United passenger has to pay the airline $50,000 for attacking a flight attendant, which forced the plane to divert. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the Horsehead Gang. So get all settled in. Trade tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 462 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City! Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today... From her lakeside studio in South, Dr. Skydiver, marathon runner, sprint training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so great to see you all this morning. Really looking forward to the show this week. Lots of interesting stuff to talk about and should be a great one. Looking forward to as well. And also joining us from his home in the Valley of the Sun. A world traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognizanti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It's Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. Looks like uh, third time's a charm, but here we are. Looking forward to another creation. Lots of good, good stuff to talk about, whether you are on demand or live. Yes, strap bands could be a good one. Good point. All right, and last but certainly not least from his studio in the pastoral English countryside. He's a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airlines. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, everybody. Great to be back on the show. Looking forward to it. And what a shame we couldn't put it on yesterday. Then I wouldn't have had to watch England lose at the rugby. Mm. Sorry. A long-tail aviation Boeing 747-400 freighter registration Victor Quebec Bravo Whiskey Tango performing flight 5504 from Maastricht, Netherlands to New York, JFK, and the U.S. was in the initial climb out of Maastricht. Am I saying that right? Maastricht, a runway 
21 yep. Maastricht. Thank you. Yep, yep. That sounds good. When the uh, number one engine, a Pratt & Whitney 4056 outboard left hand, suffered severe damage and began to distribute engine parts, turbine blades, over the village of Meersen in the Netherlands, about one to two nautical miles past the runway end. An elderly lady on the ground was hit by the debris and received minor injuries. The crew declared Pan Pan, then Mayday, and reported they had lost the number one engine. The aircraft stopped the climb at flight level 100, approximately 10,000 feet, entered a hold to dump fuel, and diverted to Liege uh, in Belgium for a safe landing on runway 22 left about one hour after departure. Did I say that wrong, Liz? Liege. Liege. Thank you. Liege. Okay. Uh, the aircraft stopped the climb at flight level 100, approximately 10,000 feet, entered a hold to dump fuel and diverted to Liège, uh, Belgium, for a safe landing on runway 22 left about one hour after departure. A number of cars on the ground received damage as a result of the debris falling. The police in Mirson uh, requested local residents to leave any debris in place and inform police. The airport reported one of the engines lost pieces of its turbine after takeoff, the aircraft Subsequently diverted to Liège on three engines, metal pieces fell down in the vicinity of Mirson. There are several reports of damages. A resident reported he heard a loud bang, spotted the aircraft with streaks of flames from one of the right-hand engines. Hmm, I thought they said it was a number one. Hmm. And uh, then metal uh, rained from the sky. A ground yeah, observer. that's uh, eyewitnesses for you, Jeff. I know, that's a great example. <laughs> well, and in the moment, it's like, hmm, right, left, I don't know. <laughs> and the, don't forget, they're looking up at the belly of the aircraft, so they're going, ah, oh, the right must oh, yeah. be over there. Yeah. Or, yeah, <laughs> who knows. <laughs> um, a ground observer video shows one of the engines was pulling black smoke behind. Ooh, pulling black smoke. Didn't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, that's a neat <laughs> trick. How do you do that? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Anyway, the uh, Dutch um, Safety Board opened an exploratory investigation into the occurrence. And uh, there are some photos here. I should probably. <laughs> there's a, is this your Audi? Has uh, that bright red color, Nick, here? Let me see. Uh, we can share this. <laughs> it certainly looks like it, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be yeah. very impressed with that aerial sticking out of my Audi. <laughs> yeah. I've got a new uh, radio aerial. Yeah, that's. That's, uh, I'm surprised at how it just went right into, thunk. and it really kind of didn't even make much of a dent. It just kind of went right down. That's really exceptionally sharp on that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I'd leave that there. That's kind of a cool. I know. It looks cool. Yeah. Uh, like. Definitely. What kind of a tent is that? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. Okay. Here's some more of the fan blades. Yeah. So obviously, um, had a fan blade uh, failure, multiple fan blade failure, and the crew looks like they handled the emergency uh, with a plum and uh, got the thing safely on the ground. Nobody hurt, uh, except for the lady that had some minor injuries. Yeah, yeah, quite lucky considering the number of blades that came down, and obviously they were traveling since they managed to spike that car very neatly. I'm so glad they didn't hit anybody. Yeah, it could have definitely been a lot worse. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. could have been a lot, a lot worse. Mm-hmm. And as far as as far as dealing with the with the with the issue itself, uh, um, the seven forty seven is just you know just as far as as far as the you know air system redundancies is just flies great on on three engines. In fact, uh, 
a number of years ago, um, a 747 taken off out of uh, L.A., uh, lost an engine on the climb out, and then they thought it'd be a good idea to fly all the way across the pond. Uh, and they almost made it, and they had to divert short of their destination because uh, uh, of uh, fuel issues. Uh, obviously, if you're going to be flying on three engines, there's uh, you know drag considerations and, and, and other things. Um, and so... Uh, they almost, almost made it. They had to divert, but uh, I believe the FAA, they weren't too uh, amused with that. <laughs> they weren't impressed with their decision-making? Uh, yeah, that they weren't. <laughs> but that tells you, I mean, that's a testament to the uh, to the, to, to the airplane. You lose an engine on a 747, it's 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 a non-issue. I mean, basically, you know, you have three other well, hydraulic systems. <laughs> well, exactly. You have... Uh, um, <laughs> You have three other hydraulic systems. You have, uh, you know, three electrical systems plus. You can turn the APU on because you can use the APU for electrics. Um, um, if I remember that correctly, but actually, I don't think you can use the APU on the seven four in flight. But anyway, I mean, the the just just the thing flies flies fine. You just a little bit of rudder, and you're good to go. But uh, yeah, this could have been. Uh, thankfully, nobody on the ground got hurt. Mm-hmm. Lots of big airplanes losing engines these days it seems mm-hmm. especially the old the good old pratt and whitney 4000 model i know not, not a good uh, not a good couple of days for and pw were these the same day or like consecutive days i can't remember like they were pretty close like maybe pretty close in time frame. let's see the yeah. first one was on the 20th and the united was always on the same day yeah i was gonna say I thought it was oh the same wow day. Mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. let's Move right on into that. Great segue to the uh, second one, which is really kind of the big one that everybody's talking about here. Well, not everyone, but a lot of people are talking about here in this part of the world. Um, A United 777 leaving Denver for Honolulu on climbout uh, shortly after takeoff um, had an issue with their right engine, the number two engine inlet, inlet separates from the engine and there was an engine fire a united boeing triple seven two hundred registration seven seven two ua that's a cool uh, registration number huh? i think it was like the first yeah. one that they uh took um mm-hmm. delivery of that's why it has that yeah that um, registration yeah performing flight uh, 328 from denver colorado to honolulu with 229 passengers and 10 crew was in the initial climb out of denver's runway 25 when the right hand engines runway or a uh, pratt and whitney 4077 Inlet separated, associated with the failure of the engine. The crew declared Mayday, reporting an engine failure. Oh, they, or wait, did they report a Mayday or a heavy Mayday? <laughs> it was a heavy that. Mayday, if, uh, <laughs> if I uh, remember correctly. Yeah, we have to get yeah. it right. <laughs> yeah, he ain't heavy. He's my well, Mayday. I mean, we're we're like kind of journalists, right? So we should <laughs> yeah. report it as for the standard. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Reported a Mayday properly. Uh, it's just that the uh, news, quote unquote, journalists, um, yeah, below 50 percent, uh, did not report it quite uh, that accurately. Big surprise there. The aircraft stopped the climb at about 13,000 feet. The crew requested to return to Denver after running the checklists. ATC offered any runway. They would make it happen. The aircraft returned to Denver for a safe landing on runway 26 about 23 minutes after departure. Um, okay. I think I ended up, it's been such a while since I... Uh, prepared for all this i'm not sure i think um i have some audio yeah some live atc audio from this situation you want to listen to it you passed all right here we go yeah 
28, heavy to return over to Muggy, wind foam, running 2-5, good for takeoff. Uh, six takeoff, 2-5, United uh, 328, heavy. United 328, heavy, contact departure, have a good day. Two departure, United 328, heavy, Mahalo. Number departure, United 328, heavy is uh, with you out of 6 for flight level 230. United 328, heavy, departure, runner contact, climb and maintain, Papa 230. Monitor turbulence from 14 to Papa 220. Okay, I understand. Thanks to the fire rep, uh, clear to climb flight level 230, United uh, 328. United 328, heavy, clear to Zimmer. All right, direct to uh, Zimmer, United 328. And downward departure, you know, did uh, 328, uh, heavy, we experienced as a failure, need a turn. Mayday, Mayday, United uh, 28. United 
did a great job of getting uh, everything under control and all checklists accomplished and got the thing on the ground. And as far as I know, I don't think they did an emergency evacuation once they were on the runway. And so there were no injuries. So um, mm-hmm. job well mm-hmm. done. Little um, little confusion there when from one pilot's voice to the other pilot's voice, where originally um, it sounded maybe the captain was saying we need delay vectors, and then the other person came on and said we need to return immediately. And the controller goes, oh, "Okay, you want vectors right now to runway seven? No, no, we're going to need some delay vectors." <laughs> so, um, hmm. and I understand there, things are pretty crazy in that cockpit right now. I'm sure, or at that moment, and uh, there are a lot hmm. uh, under a lot of stress and pressure. But absolutely. But but like I said a couple of days ago, it's um you see this the way the 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 news kind of you know blew it out of proportion. Um, it just just once again confirms the fact that these people are out to uh you know be the first, whether they're right or not, and that mm-hmm. uh, does a huge disservice to you know the, the the flying public because you know a lot of people that are not um you know. In aviation, as much as as, as we all are here, uh, uh, basically um, believe whatever it is that they're told, and and they're this the, and the media they paint this picture where you know this was a dire situation. I'm not taken away from the fact that yeah, I mean, you're, you're one of your two engines is out, uh, you're you're flying um, in uh, you know, mountainous uh, terrain. Uh, there's uh, issues to deal with to get the aircraft uh, uh, back on the ground safely, but it's not like the sky is falling. Uh, so we. We, uh, yeah. Well, it's it's really just compounded by when, especially nowadays, you know, there's pictures and video of everything. Mm-hmm. So when it's a very dramatic looking event, um, you know, that just feeds into people's imaginations. And mm-hmm. unless you have people who are subject matter experts who can speak to it quickly and provide rational information, it, it kind of gets blown out of proportion even more quickly than it would otherwise. Well, what what kind of irritates me is these local... Um, news affiliates get uh, these people that are so-called aviation experts that don't really have mm. any idea what they're talking about. Want to know what it feels like to fly and yeah. land a 777 aircraft with just one engine? Just ask pilot Rick Ruiz. It happened to him while flying a large cargo aircraft. The first thing uh, every pilot uh, <laughs> says or thinks is, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's it doing? One of the engines on the Boeing 767 he was flying went out. Ruiz tells the problem solvers the failure is noticed pretty quickly. You're going to have dissimilar thrust, which means that you're going to have thrust on one side and not on the other. And that is going to cause what's called a yaw moment, yawing moment. And that's basically the nose of the aircraft going to the left or to the right. It's at that point, Ruiz says, he used the plane's rudders to stabilize the aircraft with the plane's tail to keep it flying in a smooth forward direction. The 777, whose engine exploded just outside Denver Saturday, returned to DIA safely. Ruiz says flying and landing a plane with just one engine requires extreme teamwork and help from an auxiliary power unit, a smaller engine that's activated in the plane's tail. You just turn on your auxiliary power unit and it's going to pick up the uh, slack on the electrical system. And at that point, like I said on my on my thread, you're back to having a perfectly operable aircraft minus the engine. Ruiz says losing an engine is very rare. Still, for some passengers, it can lead to some nervous moments. Pilots, though, remain calm and are able to safely land the plane. 
And of course, the NTSB still investigating, saying that metal fatigue may have been a reason for part of what happened, but still no official determination. Meantime, Ruiz says that pilots train for all kinds of emergency scenarios, often throughout their career. Reporting live from Broomfield, Vicente Adonis, Fox 31. All right. So that was an example of these guys that have no, no, I'm just kidding. That's an, that's a great example of somebody who does (laughs) know what they're talking about and who is actually an expert in this particular situation. Great job, Rick. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. And I was, I was, uh, I I reached back, uh, reached back out to Vicente and I actually, uh, you know, thanked him for, for, you know, taking the the interest and, you know, Mm -hmm. asking the right questions and trying to, you know, educate people as to, you know, what really goes on when, when this happens. Uh, like I said, the, and I haven't flown the triple seven myself. It's 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 when you have a an engine issue. Um, as long as the systems are working properly, uh, the the rudder will go in automatically for you. Uh, it's just at the, we you know, we've talked about it at length in other episodes. It's a system called the TAC thrust asymmetry compensation. It's basically all it does is constantly compares. Um, uh, the rotational velocity of the low pressure compressor, you know, the, the deltas, and any time there's more than ten percent difference, the rudder will go in and compensate for what it interprets as a similar thrust. And so, uh, all you do at that point is just go through the checklist and disconnect the. Uh, the cool thing about the triple seven is that it has independent auto throttles for the left and right engine. So you, you disconnect the auto throttle for the affected engine, bring the thrust lever and the affected engine to idle. You know, fuel control switch to uh, cut off, and then from then. Uh, if it's a fire situation, which it, it, I obviously I wasn't there, I don't, I haven't seen the data, but the um, the the alarm that we hear on on the ATC recording um, points at least makes me think that it uh, there the the warning they got on the cockpit um, was a, a fire indication, and so the point at the, the procedure at that point would bring you to pull the fire switch up, and that disconnects. Electrics, hydraulics, pneumatics from that engine, so you're you're essentially securing the engine, and um, and dis- discharging uh, one of two um, uh, fire extinguishing bottles that are in the pylon. The issue here is that since the uh, inlet of the engine was gone and most of the cowling of the engine is gone, uh, the only way to contain that uh, that fire extinguishing agent is with the with the, with the uh, cowling around the engine. Otherwise. Yeah, you know, there's basically nothing to keep the chemical in there and put the fire out. Now, another interesting thing is is how do these engines detect fire? Is because I mean they're 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 hot. Obviously, fire is hot. But how do you make sure that uh, uh, the system works properly and, and interprets a fire as such? And so, what you have is two uh, fire detecting loops. And very simply uh, put, it uh, you basically have uh, two wires. Embedded in an isolating um, uh, material, kind of like ceramic, and when that gets to a certain temperature, the resistance of that ceramic drops to a point where, wherever the fire is happening, the circuit closes, and then that is obviously interpreted in the cockpit as a fire, uh, as a fire warning. And then you go on and uh, you know run the checklist, like we said. And then, as far as coming into land, you know, engine secure. You have your AP uh, AP running. You're you know, you're back with uh, normal electrical power. Um, and the triple seven can you know can even do a complete auto land on a single engine. So uh, it's uh, it's it's more of an issue with with um, coordinating with ATC. You know, talking to the passengers in the back, and obviously the startle factor. Remember when this happened to me? 
uh, it's certainly not something that you expect. And when it, it when it happens in real time, you go, "Holy, what's going on?" But then I tell you, and <laughs> every time I tell the story, uh, it really does feel like you're back in the simulator. It, it kind of it feels exactly like you're back in the simulator. It really doesn't hit you until you're on the ground and at the hotel. At least that's how it happened to me. So. Yeah, it's one of those things I think, you know, you, you expect it in the simulator and when it happens in real life, it's, you definitely hear that startle factor in those uh, uh, initial ATC transmissions, you know, uh, you know, like you said, Rick, it goes back to everything reverts back to your training there um, as it should. But those first few moments of going, oh, oh, okay, yep, we got to take care of this and, and communicate things and keep flying the airplane and do what we've been trained to do. We can definitely hear that in most of these instances. Um, been, I've been playing a video uh, in the background while Rick was um, talking about this, and I'm going to turn the volume up on this. I thought it was kind of funny at the very end because you can hear, hear a uh, little girl. It sounds like a little girl's voice to me anyway in the background saying something about she not wanting to fly in an airplane ever again. <laughs> this is no. after the airplane's landed. Let's see if I got it in the right place. I don't want to go on a plane anymore. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. And who can blame her? I, <laughs> I don't want I don't, to either. <laughs> I don't blame her either. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, and, we've, uh, we've kind of been playing, not playing this down, but explaining, um, you know, how well trained the crew were and how well they coped. But both these incidents to me, uh, for as a, a ex-professional pilot, a bit wiring since uh, the engine is supposed to uh, contain any blade failures. Uh, and we've had two cases here. And, and the triple uh, seven, the blade not only destroyed the casing around the uh, engine, but it actually penetrated the bottom of the fuselage. Um, that's a bit of a worry, wouldn't you say, for Pratt and Whitney? Because, uh, you know, it's not supposed to do that. Well, for GECFM as well, um, you know, the Southwest Airlines, a couple of different instances, the same thing. And I think that they may need to go, and it's a point well made, Nick, that when these things were originally designed, they weren't designed to contain the engine inlet cowling and the cowling around the whole engine, but actually contain the blades within the core of the engine. And I think... Technically speaking, everybody would tell you that these all were contained um, technically, but like the instance of the uh, Southwest where the lady lost her life, it wasn't a fan blade that hit the um, side of the airplane and caused the penetration. It was a piece of the cowling that hit the side of the airplane. So I think they may need to go back uh, and look at their requirements for um, not only containing fan blades and turbine blades blades inside the core of the engine, but also not tear up the entire cowling because now you're, you, you, what do you do? As uh, Rick mentioned, you know, the, uh, the firing, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, fire uh, retardant material, the fire bottle, fire mm -hmm. bottles. I mean, there it has to have the cowling around it for it to be effective. If there's no cowling, it just gets sprayed into the atmosphere. Um, doesn't do any good at all. So I don't know. I think you said that. If not, he should have. I should. No, <laughs> I, I, I agree 100%. I, I don't know the actual definition of an uncontained engine failure, but um, I'd be interested to know what did penetrate the belly of this 777 because there's quite mm -hmm. a big damn hole. Well, there's a, the picture that we see is actually pieces of cowling. Uh, it's a honeycomb. Um, see if I can find maybe a close up shot of that. Um, 
on one of these here. But there, there is, there is a, uh, there is a picture that shows a uh, a puncture um, right behind the 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 cascade for the reversers for the thrust reversers. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, uh, well, what, I don't, I don't okay. know if that's, if, yeah, I don't know if that's what hit the the uh, the uh, the wing to body uh, mm-hmm. joint and the underbelly uh, near the air condition impact. Okay, um, well, let me see if I can zoom in on this uh, a little bit more. Um, but the material that, um, looks like penetrated this area was, um, from something else I was reading. They said that that looks, appears to be the honeycomb material on the, um, on the actual engine cowling, but I don't know, maybe that's just the honeycomb material of that fiberglass right there. So I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what hit it was, whatever it was, it was, um, traveling at a high rate of speed and had some mass to it. So it may have been Mm. a blade. But, no, absolutely. And then also so, you have the, 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 I'm sorry, go ahead. Stop. Oh, no, I was just, so I just, you know, we were talking about contained versus uncontained, but, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because I thought just kind of quite simply that uncontained engine failure is any engine failure where you have fragments of rotating parts from inside the engine that either escape or penetrate other parts of the, the aircraft and not exit just out the back of the, mm. the right. inlet. But as I said, people are getting really technical about that definition and saying, yeah, technically, I hear that, but I think, you know, I think they the, the definition is fairly, um, it, you know, it, it's it's a technical definition, but it's not that technical. So mm. no, you know, it if, does seem to be fairly precise. Uh, I think the general public will look at the definition and go, "Well, that that's a load of rubbish." Um, and you know, you'd need to be an engine man to be able to decide whether the engine is properly designed. But from my point of view as an ex-operator, I would say that uh, the engine needs to stay together better than it, the, either of these did. Um, certainly, the cowling needs to have a chance of staying on because mm, uh, you know, raining all this stuff down on people below and the uh, and the auxiliary damage that can occur is, is not good. So, I, I hope the engine manufacturers don't try and wheedle out of this. I hope they realise that there's probably a design fault. You know, they, we've been working so hard over the years to get everything on the aircraft as light as possible to improve performance and yet increase the levels of thrust on the engines. Uh, you know, those two don't necessarily go hand in hand. You you can perhaps do one, but whether you can do both, uh, I think we're perhaps seeing the limit of the current engineering capability. Um, perhaps we're reaching that limit. I don't know. And another thing to perhaps point out here is the fact that uh, engines on airplanes are among the most changed parts. Um, you know, you take engines off and put engines back on all the time. You know, you take engines off or you have overhaul issues. You have uh, you know all sorts of things that call for yeah. the engines to be removed. So, so uh, the engine when when an airplane rolls off the factory line, it, those are not the engines that the the the, the airplane flies with. It's time. Yeah. It's that's career. a very good point, Rick, because they might say yeah. the aircraft was twenty two years old, but actually mm. oh, yeah, there was, the there components was of the engine, ancient triple seven, <laughs> yeah. falls apart. The components no. of that engine might only right. be six months old. Exactly. Right? Precisely. So. Exactly right. Exactly right. So I mean, I think that everybody agrees here that um, something needs to change as far as a definition of containment. And I think that my point was that the NTSB um, was kind of suggesting that that's what we need to look at seriously yeah. and for the engine manufacturers to start designing mm-hmm. 
engines with that in mind, not just to contain the blades and stuff that's in the core of the engine, but also the, the big pieces that we're seeing now flying all over the place, killing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and another thing to point out here is that the, you know, the cowling and, um, you know, the, the, those pieces that keep the engine, um, streamlined and aerodynamic, those are not engine parts. Those are airplane parts. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's something else to, 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 to consider. So, right. uh, yeah. Yeah. And another, you know, just exceptionally lucky event where no one on the ground was seriously injured because all of those pieces fell in basically a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, it is kind of a minor miracle that nobody, mm-hmm. although you should see the big, the big um, inlet cowling in front of the yes. person's house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, nice Christmas decoration. It's a pretty dramatic picture. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. Somebody was saying, no, no, yeah, it's mine now. That back it's mine now. Yeah, it's right. I want to I I put this. this up in my backyard. <laughs> it's a great decoration. Clutch I can't get it Clutch in. I can't fit it into my front door, but. <laughs> Someone just needs to help me roll it around back into the, in the backyard. The hot tub. Yeah. Hot tub. Good point from it or something. You it know? would make a great hot tub, Liz. That's true. Ooh, yes. Good call. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I saw that some kids had uh, grabbed some cowling parts and lined them all up in a, in a sports field. Uh, so that people could take pictures of them, uh, folks. If you if you're listening to this, please leave them where they are. <laughs> Make a note of where they are. Number one, they may not be of a material that, uh, and particularly if they've been a bit burnt and a bit damaged, that is very healthy for you um, to handle. So just leave them alone. And to the investigators, it might be important to them to know where they fell so they can work out the order in which parts came adrift uh, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, tidying things up for them or posing them for a nice picture. Yeah, that might be mm-hmm. the piece we're looking for. You know, so you just, yep. just just leave it. Yeah. Good point. All right. Let's move on to the third item. Another uncontained engine failure. <laughs> and this one, I think, was actually right. an uncontained, technically. Um, the big old AN-124 at, uh, say that again for me, uh, Rick Novosibirsk. Novosibirsk. Yes, that. Um Back in, what, November of last year, uh, a little bit of uh, investigatory work has revealed that um, they identified the destruction of the number two engine's fan disc as the main cause of the accident. I think everybody kind of knew that, but there you go. That was the update regarding this incident where the uh, AN-124 the uh, uncontained failure took out a whole bunch of, um, <laughs> they're really lucky that they got this thing back on the ground, really. Uh, they lost mm. all their electrical, I forgot all, all the different systems. They lost several of the hydraulic systems. Uh, they were able to limp the thing around um, under, and I guess it was very heavy, uh, you know, almost at its maximum weight. And uh, they came around and were able to land the thing, but there were uh, no break, no brakes uh, for no brake pressure, no reverse thrust um they just kind of kept going right off the end of the runway and uh, but luckily nobody was injured so great job yeah this thing doesn't strike me like it would have a thrust asymmetry control so <laughs> no a little a little bit earlier technologically little, little, yeah, yeah a little bit advanced <laughs> so that was not a big surprise um here's an interesting one you know these yahoo fighter pilots you know how they are um, oh, dreadful lot. The mm. worst. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, a bit too low. A French Rafale fighter cuts power lines. This is from Mentor Pilot. 
Um, a Rafale fighter jet belonging to the French Air Force cut three power lines as it flew low over a village, sustaining substantial damage. And in the process, it caused an outage in a small town. The aircraft belongs to the 4th Air Squadron, uh, 113th Air Base at Saint-Dizier-Robonsin <laughs> Air Base. <laughs> Liz, you don't have to laugh that hard. Saint-Dizier-Robinson. Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't sound French at all. <laughs> exactly. Um, along That's because I'm English. <laughs> along, you didn't even try. Um, <laughs> Saint-Dizier-Robinson. Okay. Saint-Dizier-Robinson. Along with the sure. identical jet that had taken off from Orange Air, Orange Air Base, 115th <laughs> in the south of the country. Orange there, Air Base. Orange Air Base. <laughs> <laughs> our apologies. Our apologies. Just imagine that Clouseau was saying it. <laughs> our apologies to all those people who are, are of French origin listening to the show right now. That's anyway. off the Canadians have switched off. <laughs> constructing a guillotine right now. Uh oh. Would it be a guillotine or a guillotine? Come on, a Liz. Guillotine, yes. There correct. are maneuvers found the two French <laughs> Rafale jets in the Alpes de Haute Provence region in the town of La Castellet. I should just let Steph do the rest of this one. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm probably not doing a great job either, but it's closer. Alt de Provence. Okay. Uh, Le Castellet, in case you're asking. Like, I, I think Le I got that one. Castellet. Castellet. Good, good. The Le mayor of Le Castellet reports Le that he was driving his car when he first saw the first jet. It was flying over the town, low to the ground. It went so low that it made a hell of a noise. I then raised my head and saw a second aircraft. <coughs> Excuse me. That second French Rafale was so was low enough to fly under the power lines, but not quite all the way under them, as it turns out. And uh, after the Rafale uh, jets left the French town, the, dro the mayor drove closer to the site. He discovered cut power lines laying on the ground. I immediately called the emergency services and the team at Onandi, and the electrical company. I don't know, E-N-E-D-I-S. Uh, the event caused the closure of the access road to La Casale. Approximately 300 people in the town had no electricity for three hours while crews mended the lines. Uh, Any okay. pictures, Jeff? We do have pictures, Liz. I was just waiting to finish the narrative before I showed them because then I would have nothing to read. So here we go. Share. And we can look at the pretty... Raphael Jet, the way it's supposed to look. There. Without any damage. And then we'll look at this one here. Yikes. I don't know if you yeah. can see that very well, but um, a lot of um, damage. And to me, I don't know, Nick, I'm not an expert, um, but that looks to me like if it had maybe been plus or minus a foot or two in one direction or another, it could have resulted in a much different outcome, possibly. Yeah, if you draw a line from that top impact on the fuselage down through the drop tank, uh -huh. uh, you can see, and then say, imagine that being then level on the horizon, you can see that he was actually in a pretty hard right-hand turn, mm -hmm. or, you know, a lot of bank on, either that or he was possibly in a, left-hand turn, but he had a, a lot of bank on uh, mm -hmm. one way or the other, depending on, <laughs> on which way around it was. Uh, but I, And I'd love to know the, the normal height of these cables, because you get a pretty good indication of 
uh, how high above the ground he was. But um, now, yeah, not good. I but, would imagine. Yeah, I'm very glad the cable gave way. That canard that we're seeing in the position that is like fully up right now uh, was probably more flush with the uh, in line with the flow of the air and such. But um, I would imagine if yeah, it, it's taken. It's got a little dink on it as well as yeah. it, as has the engine intake. So. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was I'm fairly lucky to get it back. But having said that, you know, we've had uh, fighter jets hit cable car, um, you know, cables and get away with it. Mm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, you know, you, with all that energy, you can part uh, big chunks of metal, but it, uh, it's not good for that. And more importantly, not good for anyone underneath it or nearby. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that they didn't have Twitter or Facebook for, you know, several hours, probably. <laughs> yeah, <it is. laughs> That's the. Well, I hope they took plenty of pictures. Yeah. Well, we don't see any, though, do we? So. No, we don't. Yeah. There we go. I, get, I expect these blokes to be banged to rights. I mean, to, to be truthful, even if you are clear to fly at a certain height, uh, low-flying maps, at least in my generation, had all the power lines uh, that you are likely to uh, have problems with clearly marked with and, and red zigzags over overlaying them so that there was no doubt as to when you were getting them. And, um, you know, it's, it's quite important. Important to spot those and make sure that you've made an allowance if you're coming up to something like that. And that was going to be my question to you, Nick, because I mean, obviously you're the only fighter pilot in the panel here. Um, is is this low level type flying? Is something that you can do just anywhere, or are, the, or are there designated areas where you can do this kind of flying? Uh, well, I can speak for a couple of countries, but I don't know about France because I never uh, did any low flying over there. So usually you're in a designated area. Uh, The Australians, for example, had areas where you could go down uh, every day to 150 feet, um, Mm. but they surveyed those areas to ensure that their maps were accurately indicated any potential hazards uh, if you were bobbing around at that height. Um, Most low flying areas... uh, I have definite limits as to where and how, mainly because of the noise problem and, uh, um, you know, keeping the local populace, uh, you know, on side, as it were, by avoiding areas of population. Um, so, and, and they have reasonable chance of uh, marking out everything there. But um, I would have thought the French probably down to 250 feet in their low-flying areas uh, and there aren't that many cables which go up that high. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Nigel is in the chat room, and uh, he's done a lot of low flying. I don't know if he did any in France. Can can remember? Oh, he can't remember what he did last week. What are you talking about? No, um, I know he's a bit long in the tooth, isn't he? <laughs> His long-term Nige. memory sticks around. Usually, <laughs> right? So he'll probably be able to reminisce a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um. Don uh, makes um, kind of a smart Alec point um, in the chat room. Uh, we can start an APG crowdfund for Rosetta Stone for Jeff, which is a, a software. For we'll have to get so many help. different languages going for but you, though. Don, you don't understand. Um, the reason why people enjoy, one of the reasons people enjoy watching this show is to watch me just butcher every single uh, international foreign kind of word. That's part of the show. It's part of the charm. Okay. I'm actually doing it on a perfect pur- purpose. I can actually correctly 
pronounce everything. It's just I purposely do it wrong so that people get entertained. You want to you want to stay humble a little bit. Yeah, right? like, exactly. Stay yeah. humble, mm -hmm. San Diego. I know that's not right, but okay. <sighs> um, they, oh, we have an update. You remember that uh, uh, citation Cessna Citation Five Sixty uh, private jet that crashed into the Mutton Mountain Range in Warm Springs, Oregon. Uh, not too far from uh, Mount Hood. Um, turns out that CFI John uh, saw this. Uh, it's an update on the citation crash. Um, sounds like the FAA will make a final ruling later. It says, keep up the great podcast, CFI John. So it gives us a link to this article. It says, Portland man who died in January plane crash was not certified to fly the aircraft. The Portland man who was flying a Cessna Citation 560 that crashed into the Mutton Mountain Range on Warm Springs land in early January, was likely flying the plane alone for the first time. At first, they thought that there was a passenger on board as well and was not certified to fly that type of aircraft. According to a preliminary report by the National Transportation Safety Board, the pilot of the flight that left Troutdale en route to Boise, uh, or Boise, uh, January 9th, was identified last Very month good. as Richard Bolke. Did I do that? Is that right? Boise. Steph? Mm -hmm. Boise, of Portland by the Warm Springs Police Department. Early reports indicated there was also a passenger on board, but authorities determined Bulky was alone when the plane went down. According to the new report, which does not identify Bulky by name, the pilot of the down plane held a private pilot certificate that was rated for the Grumman G-111 Albatross and Learjet, but FAA records did not indicate that he held a type rating for the Cessna Citation 560. The aircraft is registered to SX Transport LLC, a company with no listing in the Oregon Business Registry, but with an address on Marine Drive Houseboat Slip in Portland, where Bulky um, appeared to live. He had a Citation 560 training. He had taken Citation 560 training toward the end of 2020 at a training facility in Arizona. The report said, however, the owner of the facility stated that the pilot had not performed to a level sufficient to be issued a type rating or a single pilot exemption. Historical flight data and interviews with people who know Bulky led the NTSB to conclude the January 9 flight was likely the first time he had flown the airplane on his own. The report said that he boarded the Cessna 560, closed the cabin door at 12.44 p.m., took off by 1.07 p.m. after some back and forth with the ground controller. Early on, the pilot had some issues, the report showed, uh, when a controller provided Bulky with a heading change, he didn't respond. Two controllers made multiple attempts to contact him, and he responded on the fifth attempt. As the flight continued, he continued to be slow to respond to directions from controllers. At one point, a controller told him to turn right, but the plane turned left. Uh, around the time, oh, maybe he was the guy that looked up the engine and said it was the... Uh, Right. Yes. Okay. You know, I think you there's know. a lot of us that sometimes struggle. We know our, our right. We know the difference between our right yeah. and our left. But sometimes when you say it out loud, it's, yeah. for some reason, it's the wrong one. I'd say yeah. do, you want my, do you want my right like, or your right? Like turn east. No, nope, the other east. Well, hold <laughs> hold a rock and in your right hand. So rock right, rock right. Okay. Although that gets a little cumbersome sometimes. A glass sometimes. of port in your left hand. <laughs> a glass of port. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway. Um, we all know what happened. Uh, it kept on climbing. I missed a frequency change, or he, I think the uh, controller um, restricted him to 23,000 feet, but the airplane continued to climb and got all the way up to about 31,000 feet, and then it began to descend in a spiraling descent. 
and hit the ground at an elevation of 3,600 feet in the uh, Mutton Mountains. Um, the report said investigators recovered the cockpit voice recorder and other wreckage, which will be examined. Um, anyway, the FAA did confirm during his last transmissions, it sounded like Bulky w- was slurring his words, possibly indicating some sort of medical issue, but nothing beyond that has been confirmed. That's what I, I think we kind of thought that it was kind of the way he was talking on the radio was a little bit, you know, maybe he had some kind of a medical issue. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Um, he's listed on business registration documents for Synexus Services, a senior living company he founded in 2010. Court records showed he was sued in October for allegedly failing to pay back an $825,000 loan that he obtained in 2019 for the company. This is, you know, circumstantial hmm. evidence, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's the latest on that. All right. Not really much to say there, is it? No, I think uh. the, the article kind of sums it all up. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, some good news for a change. Um, item F, Spirit Airlines announced that they start training pilots and flight attendants next month, and they expect to return to 2019 capacity by early summer. We are expecting to see low-cost carriers recover earlier than the other airlines, and Spirit seems to corroborate this expectation. On Thursday, Spirit stated that its training programs for pilots and flight attendants could start as early as a month from now, and they need to if they're going to get the capacity they need by summertime. Spirit believes that they stand to gain market share if they're ready to go before the competition. The CEO, Ted Christie, added, will be a big hirer, again, is that really a word? Uh, Growth in the airline industry is going to be at the leisure end, and we're the primary server of that guest. The airline largely avoided furloughs in 2020. They offered incentives for leaves of absence to pilots and other staff, which many took up. Most of the company's staff is unionized, and they avoided involuntary furloughs entirely. Some non-union workers did face furloughs, although U.S. payroll support schemes meant that most still got pay. Spirit's training will involve pilots returning from furloughs and leaves of absence. Um, but there is a catch. The airline has a limited training capacity, so Spirit will need to strike a balance between training new pilots and cabin crew and bringing in existing employees. Our training footprint can only handle so much, so it has to be phased, said the CEO. The airline also has hiring plans for other non-flying positions, and interestingly, interestingly, they are not the first U.S. airline to make encouraging noises on staffing recently. Like Spirit, Delta also announced the return of 400 pilots to active status with appropriate training for the summer. And as we saw, Delta also avoided involuntary furloughs for its flight crews. However, they reduced pay and offered leaves of absence like Spirit and many others. The possibility possibility for another airline payroll support package means that airlines in the U.S. can now contemplate such moves. And, uh, and it really matters. Training for pilots and crews takes a long time. Yep. So anyway... So that's uh, just anecdotally, um, I flew a couple of trips last week, and uh, I'm telling you what, um, things are really starting to look pretty much like they were before the pandemic, Um, especially at uh, Atlanta International and several of the other uh, airports. Almost every single flight that I'm flying is carrying the maximum amount of passengers that we can with the self-imposed blockout of the center row um seating uh, we, you know we have five abreast so we have the one two three and then an aisle and then two uh, or is it two and one two three i don't know one of those <laughs> and um 
the um, know your aircraft. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I used to know that, but uh, hey, who goes back there and looks it, down? It doesn't matter. It's on one side or the other. Um, and yeah. uh, the middle row on the side that has the three seats um, is still being blocked. And um, but you know, honestly, it's hard. And when you look back from the cockpit and you you, you see the uh, passenger cabin with all the passengers in it, you're thinking this looks pretty much like the airplane's packed. So we're mm-hmm. definitely showing signs of recovery at, uh, at well, Acme. This, yeah. Yeah. This goes along with stuff I've seen, you know, just on different um, forums and things where even some of uh, the regional airlines in this country are starting to um, uh, kind of ramp back up training and uh, recruitment for new pilots and, and whatnot. So I think we're definitely turning a corner there. Cause I saw that this week, at least two different regionals are very close to um, resuming new hire classes and things like that. Yep. I, I'm yeah. I'm just curious. Uh, why on earth would they go to the expense of training up pilots um, when there must be a huge pool of pilots currently still looking for a, a job? I'm just finding this a little bit odd. Am, am I wrong in that? Uh, is everyone back in full time employment in the U.S. pilot wise? No. No. But I no. Not at all. Mm-mm. So, but it, 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 why, why well, would they go to the expense? Well, along with re- recalling pilots who had jobs and then just getting folks back into, um, you know, if someone's going to start with a new company or something, you still need to get them in and get them trained. So I don't know that they're making big differentiations between that and pilots who are brand new to airlines. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's just that we've got a piece from uh, Captain Nige coming up uh, where uh, we'll see the other side of the coin. Uh, of uh, pilots being treated very poorly uh, uh, out the Far East. Uh, and, of course, it, it just makes me think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, you know, just from my own personal experience, we'll talk about this a little bit in the uh, getting to know you segment, I'm sure. But um, trips I've taken recently can definitely confirm that at least at major hub airports and, and on major airlines, capacity does seem to be very... It gives the appearance of being back at normal levels or close to normal levels, probably different in smaller areas, but, um, and depending on where you are in the country too, depending on restrictions and things like that. But I think we're definitely moving in the right direction. Yeah, I believe no, that, I can but... tell you, I, I, I'm sorry. I was going to say, at least from, from, um, um, the last couple of, um, couple flights that I've taken, it used to be that in the, at the height of the pandemic, even during the daytime, you know, you would get a, uh, at least flying here in, in, in the continental U.S., you get a pretty healthy direct every once in a while, you know, flying from, you know, doing those transcons. And I feel like uh, now uh, you're basically sticking to your route, you know, so, and, and, and the frequencies, the, the, the radio frequencies are certainly getting a lot, uh, a lot busier. So that's perhaps another, another uh, indicator there that things are, uh, in fact, uh, returning albeit slowly oh, back to normal which is great because i tell you i mean my 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 heart hurts for 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 those folks that uh uh have their wings uh clipped because i mean it's just it's what we love to do and it's people's livelihoods and it's really uh, uh it's it's a sad you know it's a sad state of affairs that we found ourselves in um a little under a year ago uh, but certainly i'm happy to see things are slowly return back to normal. I think things here uh, in the domestic U.S. market um, are improving considerably better than every other part of the world. Um, even the even the international kind of stuff 
from here is mm. still suffering. And it's going to be a while, they say, for, mm-hmm. for that to recover. But the domestic aspect of it, uh, they're expecting close to normal kind of um, traffic um, as early as possibly the summer um, and definitely by the next summer. Um, they said that uh, yesterday or day before, the uh, TSA um, recorded one million um, passenger screen. Passenger and, um, movements. Great yeah. hmm? screenings, movements. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, that does include um, employees as well. So, uh, but typically, to give it something to compare to, on average, um, pre-pandemic, I think they said it was about two point three million per day, and I think the highest was like two point eight million. The the so still Thursday shy of fifty percent of normal yeah screening yeah. capacity at airports. But compared to the way it's been in previous um, months, it, things have really all of a sudden started to you know start. To, spiking up so oh spiking i guess i'm not allowed to use that term that's kind of a inflammatory when it comes to uh the corona doesn't have little spikes on it it does (laughs) okay proteins yeah yeah a little microaggression sorry (laughs) microaggression (laughs) tell us how you really feel okay well, I'm not going to tell you how I feel right now because I feel oh, like okay. I have coronavirus again. Oh, no. I don't. I think I'm okay. I think I have something else, I'm sure. Oh. I have been doing some Google searching, though. Oh, You've anyway. been WebMDing your symptoms? Yes, I have. Yes. Okay. Um, oh, moving on. on. Um, United Airlines passenger ordered to pay 50 grand for hitting a flight attendant and forcing a plane to divert to Alaska. A man from California. Good. Hmm? Yeah. I said good. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he also threatened to kill the flight attendant after he was denied an alcoholic beverage. Well, we can. I kill you. Oh, so he's a, he's a joy to be around at parties, apparently. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> um, let's see. Sexan Kumtang of North Hollywood appeared in court earlier this week where he was sentenced to five years probation and ordered to reimburse United Airlines for expenses incurred. During the diversion, which included the cost of meals and lodging for the rest of the flights, displaced passengers and crew, expenses that totaled $49,793. Prior to Tuesday's sentencing, Kumtang has pleaded guilty to interfering with the flight crew during an arraignment in November. During last February's incident, uh, 52-year-old Kumtang uh, reportedly began acting up shortly after takeoff from Los Angeles when a crew member observed him banging on the airport bathroom doors. I think they mean airplane bathroom doors because they're in an airplane in flight. The flight attendant tried to direct him to a different restroom, at which point he attempted but failed to shove the crew member, according to Anchorage Daily News article published last February. He eventually returned to his seat and fell asleep. When he awoke, he ordered more alcoholic beverages but was denied. He then began swearing loudly before striking a flight attendant in the face and attempting to take the crew member to the floor of the aircraft. At one point, he also yelled, I will kill you, according to an FBI affidavit ob- uh, obtained by the Anchorage Daily News. Crew members and passengers rushed to restrain the disruptive traveler before the flight was diverted to Anchorage. Flight landed safely, was met by local officials, and uh, they put, them up, put him up in a very nice hotel in Anchorage. Well, it wasn't really a hotel. <laughs> it was a kind of a solid. It, it, it was a very private More than um, one bar. hotel, probably yeah. a private room. <laughs> Lots of bars Little to choose from. <laughs> Spartan, Spartan furniture. Uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, what's the style where there's not a lot of furnishings? Minimalist. Yeah. Minimalist. Minimalist. Yeah. Minimalist. Um, yeah, yeah. Styling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of monochromatic mm-hmm. decor. The, 
It yeah. did say the judge overseeing Tuesday's proceedings uh, said the man avoided a prison sentence out of concern for his medical condition, which puts him at a higher risk of COVID-19 infection. Mm. Well, he should have thought of that before he acted like a jerk. I know. I know. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's our news for this week's episode. And that means it's one of the best parts of the show, which is called Getting to Know Us. So, let's see. Who wants to go first and let us know what has been happening with them since our last episode? I don't see any hands seniority, throwing up. Seniority. Order of seniority. Okay, here. I think Steph then. All right. Um, I mean, I just, you know, didn't want to step on anyone's toes if anyone had something really interesting going on in the past week. Um, I don't even remember. When did we record last? Wednesday last week? I think Not it was. this week. The, the previous week. I think it was Wednesday of last week or Thursday. Yeah, I think it was Tuesday. Thursday. So. Uh, Liz is saying. Thursday? Wednesday. It was Wednesday. definitely like Thursday. Uh, it was Thursday, Thursday Liz. Mm. Don't question. I mean, I, I would never oh, no, question Liz. Oh, no, no, no. 100% right. of the time. It was Steph, going to be you're Thursday right. this it was Wednesday. Until Liz, <laughs> Liz is um, apologizing. She said It was Steph's going to be right. Thursday until we canceled this yeah. week. It's all, all good. All good. Help each other out. <laughs> it's hard to remember these things. All the days. So hang on a minute. Together. If one of you is right, one of you is wrong, do we, are we above or below 50%? Both. As long as we get to the correct right answer. <laughs> We're going As we right arrive on. at the correct answer before the show is over, I think we're <laughs> above 50%. Well, you know, I'm looking at the calendar. I guess Just we never changed the calendar. Yeah, 67% correct. Yeah. It says no, we didn't. It we was didn't. Wednesday of last week on the calendar, but we never changed it, so that's why it threw us off. Hmm. Well, but it was when, anyway. Anyway, moving on from there. So, mm-hmm. um, oh, I kind of, was, um, yes. okay. didn't have a lot of <laughs> so, plans for the upcoming weekend that week. <clears throat> So that was last weekend, and I had been um, a little envious of one of my, um, uh, I guess we could call ourselves teammates, we share the same running coach who has been out to Utah multiple times this year for kind of these weekend skiing trips and posting them. And um, Normally this time of year I would be out there for a, a, a conference, um, as we all know, my, my conferences that I like so much out in Utah that also involve quite a bit of skiing. Um, that was canceled this year because of the pandemic. Um, but just watching the, the weather and everything else last week, the snow was looking fantastic. In fact, I think they got four feet of snow in four days. Four feet. Yeah. Which was good, but also bad because it created very, very high avalanche danger. Um, so I was kind of on the fence. Should I go? Should I not go? Because obviously at the ski resorts and things like that, they work really hard to control the, and minimize the avalanche danger in bounds of the ski area. Um, but it was so high that they were the, the road to the ski resorts was actually closed for, I think, almost 72 hours while they cleared everything. There were multiple avalanches and slides across the actual road to the ski resorts. Um, the town of Alta, which has Alta and Snowbird ski resorts, had what they call an interlodge period where they actually would not let people who were at the resort out of the hotels or buildings for 60 hours because the avalanche danger was so high. So people actually just got stuck there. I think that was... Tuesday and Wednesday. That must have but been I, one hell of a party. <laughs> well, I talked to a few people who were stuck there, and they said it really wasn't that great because they were just oh, stuck in their rooms, <laughs> mostly. Oh, they're stuck in their rooms. Well, oh, too, so with, with 
COVID and all the other re- restrictions, you know, oh, it wasn't like, I, I think normally it'd be a little more, a little bit more exciting, but yeah. Um, you know, for the folks who were stuck up there, Thursday was great though, because they had all this fresh snow. The road to the ski resort was still closed, but they were able to open up the ski resort because they had the avalanche control under or avalanche danger under reasonable control. So it was reduced capacity at the resorts, fresh snow. They call it a country club ski day. So um, that was Thursday, but I decided, heck, I should go. Um, so Friday evening after work, jumped on a plane, flew out to Salt Lake, got myself a nice uh, a nice hotel room up at Snowbird and spent the next two days skiing and then flew home. So like we were talking about, um, just flying between Charlotte and Salt Lake City. Pretty busy in the airports. Um, got to see the new Salt Lake City um, airport terminal, which is actually very, very nice. Um, it's a lot of walking. If you're going to be flying through Salt Lake City, prepare to do a lot of walking between gates and terminals and everything else. I was a little surprised, but, um, but very nice, beautiful. Um, snow was fantastic. Got to see both my brothers while I was out there. So that's a good thing. And, um, yeah, just had a nice little, little weekend getaway. So very enjoyable. Nice. Yeah. Uh, any, um, any flying or has the weather kind of been not good for that kind of thing? Weather has not been good for it. Um, yeah. yeah. So okay. hopefully, I mean, fingers crossed, hopefully next weekend we shall see. All right. Very good. Rick, what's been up, man? Very nice. Well, with me, not a lot, not a lot of flying either. Uh, last, <laughs> last time I flew was that, uh, that, uh, out and back to, uh, to, uh, St. Louis I did, uh, sitting reserve uh, in Ontario and uh, I was actually called out to fly two more times after that. Um, the first time, uh, we um, limoed from Ontario down to uh, March Air Force Base. It was about a uh, about a half hour, forty minute drive uh, in uh, Southern California traffic. So it's uh, you know quite enjoyable. <laughs> so another was only uh, a couple of miles away. <laughs> <laughs> so I made it to March uh, Air Force Base at Riverside there, and uh, we were supposed to uh, take a plane uh, from uh, there uh, over to Baltimore, uh, overnight in Baltimore, and then fly uh, back to uh, Riverside the following morning. Um, the issue was that there was a uh, another 767 uh, that had um, uh, a maintenance issue getting um, worked out and looked at. And so if they weren't able to, you know, square the airplane off and just have it do it, uh, it, it, its flight, it was, they're going to unload that jet, load us up, and we would take the freight over to Baltimore. Uh, so we got to the, uh, we got to the airport, uh, the jet was ready, there were, you know, everything was fueled, ready to go. Uh, but it looked like the airplane uh, that they were working on were, you know, they were in fact going to be able to fix this thing, which, which they did. And so, uh, well, that that flight left, albeit a little late, uh, and so we were uh, you know, returned back to the airport, uh, back to the hotel, in uh, lovely Southern California traffic once again, um, to go back and sit, reserve some more. And then uh, a couple of days after that, I think the day after or, or two days after, the same deal, um, you know, rescue a plane out of uh, this time out of the Ontario airport, so the drive wasn't that bad. Uh, and uh, before we even got out of the car to get to the airplane. Um, they figured the problem out and so they drove us right back to the uh right back to the hotel <laughs> so that was a we got dressed up for nothing twice the but, uh, you know, oh, no no not that guy not that captain uh, not, not guy. that exactly oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, we, yeah signed off good to go <laughs> 
so um uh that was that was it so that that one flight that one flight to st louis and back and then uh so got home i'm looking at the calendar here got home on tuesday and uh just been working around the house uh, quite a bit we're doing um we're looking at doing uh some um some major remodeling here uh so we had a couple of architects come over and uh and give us a couple of quotes that we can do and the reason why we have to involve our architects is because there's a little bit of a um, structural um, um, issues uh, as far mm-hmm. as the kind of um, additions that we want to make. Um, and so, you know, they, they have to, they have to look at, uh, you know, the load bearing, uh, load bearing of the walls and then basically yeah. the layout and load all bearing. that. So, you know, just load little bearing. details, you know, <laughs> details, details. It doesn't matter. And <laughs> so just been, been, been doing that. And then, uh, yesterday I'm just continuing on with uh, my work out here in the, uh, in the, uh, in the courtyard, uh, putting nice, um, um, my river rocks around the, the planters here. And then, uh, the thing is that the kind, the kind of look that, that, that I like, it's, it's, it's not, it's not something that you can buy at a store. So basically what I do is I just buy the river rocks at the home Depot or Lowe's or whatever the store is in you know, the big box item stores. And then I, I order, um, this, this thing called seal Crete. It's this, uh, wet look, um, uh, concrete spray. You know, spray the rocks and then uh, just 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 kind of place them there. So um, yesterday I carried what was it uh, forty pound forty uh, forty bags of of, of uh, river rocks around. So uh, that was that was my wow. gym. Get your workout in, yeah, exactly. exactly. So yeah, look at those on guns. my hands and knees all day. <laughs> <laughs> on my hands and knees yesterday working on that, and it was nice, you know. And then in the evening I grilled a couple steaks. We had the the neighbors over um, and uh, had a nice dinner. So that's. Uh, but uh, nice. put a uh, put a get nice all that, on, get all uh, that on a day. work done before summer shows up. Oh, exactly. That's the thing. Exactly. Outside. Does it get? Oh hot yeah, out? exactly. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So I'm not exactly right. You know, you're right, Steph. Because I mean, if if uh, during the summertime, you know, it's it was it, it's nine o'clock now, nine thirty now. Uh, summertime at this time a day. I mean, you're, you're looking at the at the nineties, and it's mm-hmm. it's oh, you know, it's not even yeah. it's not even ten o'clock in the morning yet. So. Yeah, so you got to get that work, that outside work done um, early in the year. Nigel, uh, some advice for you, Rick. Uh, You need to strengthen your house now that they're raining triple seven engine parts all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to have to uh, protect the investment over here. Kevlar Kevlar roofs. Put that that rock and spray creed or whatever it was on on your roof, right? There you go. That's cool. Yeah, that, hey, that, that, you know, I'm looking, we're looking at the video. Uh, yeah, that's a, just an absolutely beautiful wooden desk and uh, hutch or whatever you call it behind, behind you there. Is that uh, something from your, from your family or, I mean, is that something that you found somewhere in an antique store or what? No, no, this is, this is, uh, this is Kaya's desk. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, oh. so this is, this was given to her by her parents. Mm-hmm. Um. So this is kind of a yeah, kind of a kind of a family family heirloom type thing. That's been in her family. So uh, that's why it was funny when when you told me about installing the mic, <laughs> drilling, drilling and drilling a hole through the desk. Yeah, I'm thinking so that it was like eh. really that would have been a bad move. <laughs> See, I'm I was actually like, still planning to do that to my desk. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. I was like, desk, yeah, I Jeff, know. I don't think I don't think that'd be a. If you, be, not if, a you Kai, here. if you want to be in you want to be in Kaya's good graces, I uh, let me let me let me suggest that I, we not do you that. You didn't tell me it was her desk. <laughs> and you don't yeah. care about Rick's. <laughs> I don't care about your. I, I'm just stuff. jealous of that chair, Rick. It looks very comfortable. Yeah, yeah, 
very very comfortable indeed <laughs> and was was that were those uh, dogs on my end perhaps i don't know i no, they're my know. end uh, oh, okay. that's why i stopped talking so quick <laughs> they sounded they sounded too loud to be the dogs on my end, or too too large to be the dogs mm-hmm. on my end. hey so so nick um do you want me to just uh, completely skip you because you're always disappointed when i come to you and you say there's nothing going <laughs> well, on now i've got something to say oh okay good. all right <laughs> let's hear absolutely. it absolutely so i i mean I, just on the on the you know um house uh fixing up i uh, i had to take down our 25 year old rose arch which is just looks just glorious in the summer smothered in uh, white roses but it was had you know reached the point where it was giving way so uh, they that had to come down and my god those roses are vicious i mean you think most fighters have decent self-protection systems. I'm not kidding. I am just covered in punches uh, from all those damn thorns. So you know the the roses. Um, and after that length of time, were the had you know like tree trunks almost. Uh, they were very substantial. We managed to preserve some, and we've got the the structure down and i've got a replacement one behind me uh, which is uh, jilly's birthday present going up in the next couple of days when my back feels a bit better because right now <laughs> my back is not happy with me mm. so uh that was the first thing um and then the uh we, of course we had as you can see behind me uh we had the big moon the snow moon i think it's called uh last couple of nights a full moon very, very bright. Um, we've got Pip in the chat room who will probably uh, tell me why uh, it's such a special moon. But uh, it was just fabulous last night. So I took the camera out and uh, took a t- couple of shots. They were so big I couldn't fit, you, fit it in the picture frame <laughs> on, this, on this video. But that was fun. And then, of course, there's a couple of um, things just to remember because uh, – Liz reminded me that uh, it was two years ago today that I was on my very last trip as an airline pilot. So oh, yeah. uh, we had I had flown out uh, in an A330 to uh, um, Miami, mm-hmm. and we had a really nice couple of days in Miami. Uh, and um, we even got Fred down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you made it, did you, Steph? She was in Tokyo. No, yeah. I did not because I was uh, at the aforementioned conference in Utah. Ah, that that's right. I yes, you were. Very important conference, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really was a, a lovely uh, meetup and uh, flight home. And I had no idea then that uh, what's troubling me, me now was really going to start big time uh, soon after I landed because uh, that's when uh, I um, threw a disc in my back and... Um, Ended up uh, really invaliding myself out of the business so that uh, I, I lost my medical, couldn't get it back again, and decided that it was so close to retirement I would, uh, wouldn't would even try. I would, uh, you know, um, retire six months early and, uh, you know, just enjoy the life of um, a podcaster. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. so I was wrong. I was not in Utah. Liz is actually correct on this one. I was actually in Tokyo, so even farther away. Oh, you were running a marathon, mm-hmm, I expect, then. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't there keep track go. of my schedule. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Two years after the fact. 
<laughs> but no. um, the, the big thing I was going to mention, really, uh, and I thank you, uh, is to uh, Tuba Tony, one of our listeners. Now, I think the first time I met Tony was when we had a meet-up at the uh, at Vahazy, uh Centre uh, near the airport in Washington, uh, where we got together with Robert and uh, oh, I'm not going to remember everyone. I, mm-hmm. I think Hillel was there. Uh, there was a, a bunch of uh, yeah, Micah almost certainly, and bunch of our uh, listeners, and um, uh, in particular uh, Robert, who had you know was a regular. He lives uh, in Washington. He was a regular visitor. Uh, more or less gave us a tour of the museum, but it was really great to wander around that uh, fabulous aviation museum. Um, and chatting to Tony, I discovered that he was a, a band member of the United States Navy Band. So we just kind of kept in touch. And a while later, he uh, suggested to me that a suitable subject for a plain tale uh, would be the uh, dreadful loss the band suffered uh, in 1960. Um, on the, I think it was the 25th or the, yeah, I think it's the 25th of February uh, 1960, when uh, 19 members of their band who were touring South America um, were positioning up uh, to um, Buenos Aires. And uh, they were going to, I'm sorry, they were positioning up to Rio, Rio de Janeiro. Uh, They were going to play for a formal uh, event that evening. And they had a mid-air collision with a DC-3. They were flying in a Navy DC-6. And uh, all 19 members of the band uh, on board died. Uh, It was a tragic event, um, but it gave me the chance to tell a little bit of the story of the uh, how the U.S. Navy Band uh, was formed, its history, and then cover this awful event, and then uh, you know basically give uh, an admiring um, air to how the rest of the band managed to carry on uh, playing events uh, for the rest of this tour, despite the fact that they had uh, suffered this awful tragedy, um, and it it was a perfect subject for. Uh, a plain tale. So I thought that was that was brilliant. But uh, then Tony went on to uh, let the U.S. Navy uh, PR people know, and um, they they uh, featured it on the U.S. Navy Band we- uh, Facebook page on the twenty fifth uh, of February, mentioning the um, the goodwill tour that the Navy were undergoing and. The, how they lost their entire chamber orchestra in that uh, collision. And they go on to say, uh, the Airline Pilot Guide podcast takes a deeper look at the collision, offering a detailed uh, look into the catastrophic event and how they will never forget the lives of those lost and link to the plain tale on our website, which I thought was fabulous because you know that uh, website has over a million followers. And wow. uh, if there's anyone who, you know, uh, saw that and uh, decided to listen in out of interest, welcome aboard. Uh, and what a great story that was. And thank you very much indeed, Tony, for uh, giving us that extra um, publicity. Very kind. Absolutely. Thank you for the uh, shout out. And thank you, Nick, to all the 
amazing work that you do each and every week with those plain tales. Definitely noteworthy for sure. Well, that's very kind. And you know, I love it. I enjoy doing it. I know you do. All right. Anything else? No, not for me. How's the, uh, how's the back feeling though? Okay. Uh, very iffy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm okay. But I, uh, you know, I, if I just look at it wrong, then, uh, it starts. To hurt. <laughs> well, you don't want to do that because you'd have to twist yourself into pretzels. Yeah, so that's kind of, that, just, yes, just, that's, I use a mirror, of course. Face Rick. forward. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you'll be all right. <laughs> it was, which is more or less what I'm doing. Absolutely. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Well, being a, um, an aviation expert and, uh, man of aviation intrigue that i am <laughs> <That's a joke. laughs> international um, intrigue yeah international I, I, intrigue i like the uh, um yeah, i like the uh, <laughs> what's that i don't even know what that the uh accolades you've given yourself there yes thank you sure. yes well nobody else gives them to me so i gotta somebody's got to <laughs> no i'm just kidding um i received an email um regarding a um uh, an auction and i think well they must be be thinking that I'm the kind of guy that would attend auctions and bid on expensive things. And uh, this was uh, lot number 51, an auction that ended on Thursday. I was going to do this while we recorded the show live on Thursday to just kind of get an idea of what the, what the bidding was like and perhaps, you know, maybe, you know, put in the winning, the winning bid for this. So this is a interesting um, book, um, Amelia Earhart signed limited edition of the book, 20 hours, 40 minutes, one of only 150 limited edition copies signed by Earhart with a U.S. flag carried aboard her 1928 transatlantic flight. It's a little tiny flag, a silk, um, like the size of, of a business card on one of the pages. And I thought, wow, that's really nice. They had the minimum bid. This is before the auction started $8,750. I checked in on this uh, the other day, and it looks like when the auction ended on Friday, uh, they got to ten thousand nine hundred and thirty-eight. Wow, I was going to spend at least twenty thousand dollars on it. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, Liz, it's time to time. talk about the coffee fund, <laughs> <laughs> the coffee slash auction bidding fund. No, I'm just kidding. I uh, I would not have spent that much money on something. I just thought that was interesting. Uh, um, would have been a cool. Um, piece of history to, to own, I think, but not for me. Um, and let's see, what else did I want to talk about? Um, everyone, oh, I, let's see, since the last show I've flown, huh, I did have a, I had a three day and a two day trip scheduled. A Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then a Thursday, Friday. I got a call. I don't think this happened before the uh, podcast last week. Somebody called up and said, hey, uh, Jeff, I'd like to buy your trip from you. And it was a management pilot. And I thought, hmm, okay, that sounds fair to me. Uh, I mean, you mean, you'll pay me for actually not flying the trip? And, they, and he said, yes. And I went, okay, good. I like that. I called up uh, Brent or sent him a text, actually. He, he and I were supposed to... Uh, fly that trip again together stuff. And I said, Brad, I don't want to, you know, do this to you if you don't want me to, but I'm, you know, I'm having this, uh, offer, uh, proffered to me. And, um, he said, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'd do the same thing. So, um, I, uh, went ahead and, um, accepted the buy of the trip. And this is for things like, uh, management pilots have certain numbers of, um, 
for hours they have to log every quarter and they got to keep their landing currency and that kind of thing. And um, every now and then they'll look at somebody's trip and if it looks nice enough, they'll say, oh, I'd like that one right there. And they probably don't get a lot of folks that say, uh, no, I don't want you to buy the trip. I want to fly it. <laughs> so um, I ended up picking up um, another trip Sunday and Monday, um, an actual overtime trip. So I got double pay on that one. So it worked out pretty well. Um, that was an overnight in Oklahoma City. And then um, on uh, Thursday and Friday, had an overnight in Milwaukee. And that's Thursday was when we were supposed to record the show. And uh, if you listen to the um, the intro there with uh, Radio Roger, he told you that I was in Milwaukee at the uh, at the Fitz, uh, Fister? Fister. Uh, yeah, Fister. P-F-I-S-T-E-R hotel. And I was. Uh, but we didn't record that day. So here we are on Sunday morning. Um, and in my next week, I fly out on Tuesday afternoon, deadhead. And then I'm in Providence all day the following day, Wednesday. And then fly a turn uh, the next day to Atlanta and back. And then Friday, three legs. And then that's my flying for next week. So um, it's a pretty nice trip. And what else did I want to talk about? Oh, I was... Um, as I mentioned, when I got back from this Milwaukee trip, I was feeling a bit under the weather. That's re- the reason why we postponed recording yesterday morning. I just couldn't get the energy to uh, to do it. I was spending most of my day in bed, and um, I was watching the um, This Week in Technology, TWIT. Um, they, it's a radio show that um, Leo Laporte does every weekend. It's a syndicated radio show called The Tech Guy. And they also stream it and put it on many of the streaming platforms. And so I was watching it. And um, about two-thirds of the way through the show, um, I hear uh, Leo Laporte mention that uh, they have Micah coming up after the break. And I went, oh, I know. They do have a one of the major hosts at Twit, uh, a gentleman named Micah. But I knew which Micah he was talking about on the uh, on the radio so uh, I was able to record a little bit of this, and uh, Micah is a regular call-in um, participant on the uh, the Tech Guy radio show, and he has for years been a um, a supporter and promoter of this podcast, the Airline Pilot Guy, and the Airplane Geeks podcast. You'll know that Micah. Uh, on occasion, is also a co-host of that fine podcast. PTUK as well. And uh, PTUK as well, yes. Um, and uh, But he always, I, I love it when I hear Micah's voice because I'm thinking, oh, I know for sure he's going to do something to plug Airplane Geeks and the Airline Pilot Guy show. What's funny about all this, and he's been doing this for years, right, Micah? I don't know if he's with us in the in the chat room right no, now. No, I haven't seen him this okay. Um He... Uh, from early on, he said, well, I I'm, I, I participate in podcasts, but it's not my podcast. And Leo Laporte, just, it's like a, a wall that he can't get past. And so Leo thinks that the Airline Pilot Guy Show and the Airplane Geeks is Micah's podcasts. And I think Micah just finally gave up um, some time ago, and I don't blame him. <laughs> and then I was thinking about it the other day. I was having this discussion with um, Nick. I said, you know what? Really? He's being honest there. It is his podcast. It is everyone in the community's podcast. Um, we just happen to be the ones that are the hosts in front of the cameras and in front of the microphones talking. But it's not just it's not our show. It's not my show. It's everybody's show. So um, I love it when I hear Micah on 
a national uh, syndicated radio show uh, plugging our show. And so let's listen to a little bit of that. Oh, um, he also starts talking about an issue that he has with um, internet radio. He has a radio from uh, uh, C Crane that's internet radio. And so that's the, really the reason why he's calling in, not only to plug the airplane geeks and the airline pilot guy show. Um, and then um, at, at another point in this, and I, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to stop or not. Um, he talks about the fact that one of the guests that Leo has on the um, Saturday show is a guy named Johnny Jet, who is a um, travel um, podcaster, writer, um, social media guy. And <laughs> uh, Micah has complained the fact that uh, he must have said something that offended Johnny Jet because Johnny Jet blocked him on Twitter. And so he gets that in and he actually gets Johnny Jet on the show. Now they're doing the same thing that we're doing here. And it's a radio program. They'll take breaks, but the whole thing is being um, uh, videotaped. And so you're watching what's going on behind the scenes during the breaks and everything else. <laughs> so some of this happens while they're off air and during commercials and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I'm thinking, wow, he's, he's uh, making some progress about uh, trying to get unblocked by Johnny Jet. So we'll hear that. And then at the very end, I don't know if I was able to get this or not, but um, there was a response from the uh, the CEO and uh, founder president of um, uh, C Crane Audio, Bob Crane, actually texts texts Le, um, Leo Laporte during the show live based on Micah's input regarding the problem that he's having with the radio. So, man, Micah has got a, has a really powerful media voice out there, apparently. So uh, let's uh, take a listen, and I think you'll agree that it's kind of exciting to hear him uh, promoting all of us. Whoa, whoa! Oh, I should mention, um, the uh, <laughs> Leo is singing something we don't hear, I guess, as part of this being on the on YouTube, they take out the um, the actual music that's being played from the studio, the, uh, the board in Los Angeles, and so we don't hear that music playing, but Leo is kind of singing <laughs> it's some kind of a rock song that he's singing that's why it sounds like he is having a little bit of a stroke or something but anyway whoa whoa yeah leo laporte <laughs> the tech guy uh 8888 ask leo whoa whoa it's micah from portland hi micah hey leo how are you i am well. so happy to be listening to you oh thank you for I calling well, I listen to you every week. I'm a loyal listener, and, you know, I love terrestrial radio. I don't listen to you on terrestrial radio because the state of terrestrial radio just is <laughs> It's not great, is it? You're a podcaster, so, too, so you, you, you understand the value of audio programming. Frankly, thanks to the Internet, you know, uh, we don't need terrestrial specifically. We just need radio. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so many years ago, and yes, I am a podcaster. I work with the airplane geeks and uh, also sometimes with the airline pilot guy. But a good podcaster knows how to get in those plugs. <laughs> Part of the deal, right? <laughs> no, I don't mind. I love it. <laughs> I would have do done it anyway. You know that every time you call, I mention, and tell me about your podcast. So go ahead. <laughs> well, I won't tell you about the podcast now, but if you're into aviation, that's the way to go. Um, Many years ago, I bought a C-Crane Wi-Fi radio. Talk about people that love radio. The C -Crane I know, radio, they're, they're great. Sponsor. I know, and oh, I know gosh. Bob Crane, and he's a great guy, and yeah, absolutely agree with you. And, 
And that's how I listen to you every week, because I can't get you on terrestrial radio. But the C-Crane Wi-Fi radio and just about every Wi-Fi radio that is made these days uses a database called Receiva. I know where you're going with this. And that's owned by Qualcomm. And guess what? It's being shut down the end of April. And so that C-Crane radio is going to turn into an anchor. Yeah, this 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 was uh, Receiva is a directory of uh, of internet radio stations, and almost all the internet radios I know of uh, use Receiva's directory. Um, I think you're now. This will be interesting to see. Yes, they're shutting down in April. Uh I think if you program in all the stations you want, and that C Crane has some buttons like a regular radio. Um, those should still work because essentially it's giving a URL to that button. Until the URL changes, that'll work fine. However, searching for new stations, you won't be able to do that anymore. And that's fine. But from what I have read, a lot of now, I don't know if, if Twit changes their URL, but a lot of radio stations do change them yeah, they, periodically. Yeah, they might. And that at that point, yeah, you're going to lose them. Uh, we do not uh, because podcasts. You know this with the with the the plane geek, um, the what is it? The pilot geek, the pilot guy. The no, well, it's two different shows. There's the airplane geek, and then there's the airline pilot guy. The airline pilot guy, APG. You know that that you don't ever change that. Uh, that URL is is uh, an RSS feed, and and of course that's how people subscribe to you. You never change that. But you're right. Radio stations may, and without receiver to back them up. Um, it's it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I, you know, your your radio will work for a little while. What's interesting about iHeart? Well, I know you got to take the break, but maybe you can keep me on. Hold on a sec. Yeah, we're going to take a break, but I will be back with more right after this. So I'm looking um, at a uh, website that says I blocked my receiver at the router just to see what would happen. Well, tell Johnny I said hello. I, I wish will. I could follow him on Twitter. For some reason, I commented on one of his posts once, and he blocked me. Micah, I he didn't. But... Unblock Micah, Johnny. Oh, I don't block anybody. What's your What's your I, Twitter I'm handle, Micah? It's Maine Fly, Maine like the state, and Fly. I think Johnny might be unblocking you even as we speak. That Mike is a wonderful. good guy, and he sees stuff. He does the APG I podcast. Honestly, I blocked like ten people in my life. What did that. you say, Micah? What did you say? What did you say? <laughs> I think it was something. Uh, it was many years ago, and Johnny said something that was that, that we, was kind of in. We, we've it, all said things right, we shouldn't say on Twitter. It wasn't anything nasty. Was <laughs> Twitter nasty. encourages that. Thanks, Micah. Have a great day. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Twitter is made for outrage. We didn't talk about the triple seven. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at this guy. By the way, you just told me Maine Fly. I went. Yeah. He was blocked. He was blocked because he said yeah. something mean. No, <laughs> listen, honestly, I've I have not blocked a lot of people. For that, for me to block someone, they had to say something really bad, <laughs> and um, but I just unblocked them. So I apologize. So oh, my God. I've had that happen before where there's mistakes. Where a bit mistakes that, no, happen. All around. That's right. Mistakes so. were made. Johnny takes no responsibility for them. No, I listen. 
Honestly, I really don't block a lot of people. No, I know, because you're, you're a good guy, and nobody says mean things to you. Even on my Facebook, when we get political, I mean, if they, if they say something about my kids, they're blocked. Well, that's different. But, yeah, my but it did not. You say anything about my wife or my kids, psh, you're, on my, you're on my list, buddy. So, anyway. Or off I'm my list. And I'm, something. I apologize. And I'm, I'm going to follow him. Mike is a nice guy. No, Mike is great. I'm following him now to make up for it. Oh, see, Micah, you got to follow. APG. Johnny, everything good at home and kids <laughs> doing all, all right? Happy birthday. <laughs> APG. Oh, nice. that was brilliant. Absolutely. I didn't count Love how it. many times he said airline pilot guy and APG on that. <laughs> Lots of plugs. Quite a few. Yeah, that's good Quite stuff, yeah. 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 Well, and I agree, Micah is a scoundrel, Laura. <laughs> I wonder what he said to upset him. Oh, you know. I don't know. Now I'm really curious. Johnny yeah. sometimes search he, back through the Twitter archives. Johnny sometimes they you know Leo will ask him stuff about the kind of thing that that we would know something about how to answer in Micah, but people that aren't really that knowledgeable of airplanes and aerodynamics and the way things really work sometimes don't give the exact right answer, and so it was probably just Micah kind of pointing out that something he said was wrong, and I guess he didn't like <laughs> like that, and uh, he blocked him. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Micah will well, hey, let uh, us know. Speaking of other podcasts, since we're just plugging all the podcasts, mm-hmm. um, I should probably mention that in just under two weeks' time. So I think it's March 12th. Um, I'm going to be part of Plane Talking UK's. They're doing a special for International Women's Day. We're going to oh. do a Women in Aviation special. Um, so it's going to be, we're kicking out, kicking out all the usual hosts. It's going to be myself. It's going to be Armando's wife. We're going to have Ariel Tweedo. Um, and we're also going to have Jody Ruger. And we're going to put together Ooh, wow. a bunch of interesting things. So um, I'll have some more information about that. I'll try and get that on the social meds for the information of when to tune in. Yeah, yeah. that's going to be brilliant. I'm going to have to listen. Who's actually going to host the show? You, Steph? Yeah, we're working on all the details right now. So I think Megan and I are going to be um, just kind of directing um, where the show goes and, and the um, order of topics and things like that. Excellent. Well, that'll be yeah. that'll be great to listen to. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely let everybody know when the time gets closer. Yep. Very um, much looking forward to it. I'm going to be on a um, another podcast on Monday. Tomorrow afternoon, um, Paul Nyhart from Icon Aircraft, uh, the Icon A5, little uh, light sport flying boat, um, is um, contacted me and asked if I would be interested in being interviewed for Adventure Flying, uh, a new podcast on Spotify. So um, I'll let everybody know how. Excellent. Yes, cool. the, uh, you'll be able to tell them all about your ditching experiences. Then. <laughs> yeah, we're, I'm not going to. I'm not going to get um, all you know serious about that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I guess they don't really spend a lot of time on talking about the uh, Icon i5. My ditching. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> well, that. It's a. It's a. Doesn't it land on water? Well, the Icon does. Not- yeah. Oh, okay. Not not all water landings are ditching, so if it's a, you know if it's supposed to land. Oh yeah, right. so, some I've been redefined as a controlled water landing or something. Yeah, yeah. I'm I've sorry. Always, in my book, it's a ditching. <laughs> I've always thought that that was such a great little looking little airplane, a very sporty looking. Oh, I'd love to have a go one. Yeah, uh, absolutely. One of our um, 
listeners, Paul, uh, up in uh, uh, Canton, Akron, Youngstown, Ohio, um, he stayed with us one of the nights at the uh, uh, Airbnb in Dayton. Uh, Nick, you'll remember Paul. Um, Absolutely. He um, had me send a link to Steph regarding um, a lake aircraft, lake buccaneer uh, video that uh, somebody had, uh, ta- I guess he lives on Lake Norman. Oh, yeah, and right. uh, mm-hmm. and I, I just always thought that those flying boats or amphibians are just amazing little pieces of kit. And uh, so I told Paul that, that uh, you know, I'd be happy to be on, on the show as long as they gave me one of the Icon A5s. <laughs> and then I didn't hear anything back from him. And then I had to follow that up with, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, wrong. <laughs> expect how about half off no um but, it's just a small honorarium yeah you know yeah no big deal anyway um so i i'm going to definitely talk about my love for amphibious aircraft and uh you know that that story one of the my favorite plane tales nick was the one you did about the uh the long way around i think that was uh what it was called the uh boeing um 314 um robert ford and the crew that had to go yeah, all the, the way around the, the big world. clippers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that was an amazing story. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Anyway, so that's uh, on the uh, schedule for tomorrow, and that's about all I can think of. Anything else? Well, I hope you stay fit enough to take part. Fingers crossed. Coffee fund. Yes, it is now time. Thank you, Liz. It is now time for us to talk about the coffee fund and here we go let's get jeff smith to uh sing us a little ditty johnny how much more coffee no thanks i love coffee i love tea i love the apg community coffee and tea and the java and me a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, Coffee Fund, your way, dear listener, to support our show financially. Now, there are many, many ways to support our community. Just being part of it is support in itself. Uh, for those of you who send us feedback, that's another great way to support us. But if um, <clears throat> you have some financial resources to contribute toward our Coffee Fund, we would definitely appreciate that. And a couple of different ways to do that. The first is via the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last episode, we have Chris Randall, David Lieb, and Mike Kahn. Uh, They all use the PayPal Coffee Fund Classic Method, where you can do a one-time donation or recurring donations. The other way to do this, and I'm glad we're doing this a couple days after we were originally scheduled to do the show, because at that point, we didn't have any new patrons, but we do now, since... The uh, last episode, we have two new patrons. Uh, we have uh, Stephen Clark, uh, producer, and executive producer Jody Pombrio, or Pombrio. So, thank you very much for becoming patrons of the show. If you want to join these great people, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com/coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Incoming message. Hello, APG crew and community. This is Hong Kong Nigel. I thought I'd give you an update on how Hong Kong aviation is faring. The short answer is extremely badly. 
I think I was the first to bring the C word to APG with my last feedback exactly one year ago. On the 24th of Feb 2020, there were about 80,000 cases in 34 countries, and there were 2,600 dead worldwide, but mainly in China. Today, on the 20th of February 2021, there are now 110 million cases in 192 countries. Sadly, 2.5 million people have died worldwide, and this time last year, in the UK and US, for example, there were no dead. However, this year, in the US, half a million people have sadly died, and 120,000 in the UK. I finished my last feedback with, hope you have your seatbelt still buckled because there's possible turbulence ahead. I think none of us foresaw just how turbulent it was going to be, and if I'd said any of those numbers a year ago, no one would have believed me. We now routinely live with the unbelievable. Moving on to a summary of aviation then, pilots firstly. Flight Global have recently done a pilot survey worldwide, and in that they discovered that fewer than half of all commercial pilots are still flying for a living. 30% of them have described themselves as unemployed, 17% are furloughed, 6% say they're employed in aviation but in a non-flying role, and 4% are working but in another industry. Just leaves 43% of pilots doing the job that they trained for. In November 2020, a few months ago, BALPA, which is the British Airline Pilots Association, claimed that there were about 10,000 unemployed commercial pilots across Europe, including 1,600 in the UK. Moving on to aircraft, at the beginning of January, there were about 7,300 aircraft still grounded. 13 months ago, 90% of them were active. That dropped during the peak of the uh, pandemic down to 40% last May. Currently, there are about 75% of the global fleet is active. In other words, there's a slow recovery. The worst countries for grounded fleets are number one, Nigeria. They've got 70% of their aircraft grounded. And Hong Kong is next on the list with two-thirds of their total fleet grounded. In Alice Springs in Australia, there are 147 Cathay aircraft parked on the ground. Moving on to Hong Kong specifically... I know APG is non-political, but Hong Kong does reflect what's going on in the rest of the world. For example, there are similar issues in the UK with both British Airways and Virgin Atlantic. Hong Kong's also typical of worldwide trends. Again, for example, South African Airways is gone. Virgin Australia and Norwegian have been completely restructured. And in America, United Airlines has introduced contract reductions with 1,100 early retirements to avoid another 2,800 furloughs. It's even rumoured that Acme Management took pay cuts, but that might just be a rumour from HR. Last December, Cathay Pacific Airways only carried a total of 40,000 passengers in the whole month, which is a decrease of 99% compared to the previous December. To counter the decline in passengers last October, Cathay uh, cut 8,500 jobs, which was about a quarter of its workforce, and 6,000 of them were fired uh, within the week. Sadly, that led to the demise of Cathay Dragon. It used to be Dragonair, uh, it was taken into Cathay, then called Cathay Dragon, and it mainly fed mainland China, a similar uh, arrangement to the ex-German Wings and Lufthansa tie-up. Cathay Dragon had 35 Airbus, and uh, in one day, 
550 pilots and 2,000 cabin crew were fired. That was followed in November with the Hong Kong Cathay crew getting new contracts and basically they had two weeks to either sign the new contract or be fired. So about 2,600 pilots took a uh, 35% pay cut and about 7,500 cabin crew took a 50% pay cut. Contract itself, well, I think a roll of toilet paper would be more useful than the words written in the entirely new contracts. Cathay has bases in North America, the UK and Australasia, and their future is uncertain. There are about 650 pilots on base. Currently, 400 of them are stood down, and the other 150 are flying freighters, which are very busy. If those bases close, I'm guessing that probably few of them would return to Hong Kong on the new reduced Hong Kong contract. Somebody once said, and I think it was a BA pilot, if it was just about a pandemic, they wouldn't need permanent changes to contract for those not fired. You'd include some bounce back terms when uh, the airlines return to profitability. If I were to summarise escape routes, you'd look at vaccines, etc. At the moment, 200 million doses of vaccine have been done. If you compare that to a world population of, say, 8 billion, and let's say 7 billion of those need two shots, that's 14 billion doses need to be done. You've only got 98.5% of the rest of the world to go so far. Number of countries in the world, number 195. And the number today with no travel restrictions whatsoever, number 7. IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association, represents 290 airlines worldwide. They're introducing the IATA Travel Pass. It's a digital mobile app that uh, records tests and vaccine. Not only is it a PAX record, but it also lets you know what requirements are at each airport. They're not going to get onto their first test until the end of March, which will be done with Singapore Airlines. Unfortunately, the World Health Organization only a month ago called on governments not to introduce vaccination or immunity requirements as a condition of entry for international travel. In other words, there's still quite a lot of disagreement. It's still a snafu. So to summarise, I recommend you stay buckled up. It's not over yet. A couple of footnotes that I think are worthy. Chemtrails. For those of you that are into chemtrail conspiracies, you'll notice they're a lot less recently, and that's because we're all getting vaccinated instead. And the second footnote, I noticed that Captains Jeff and Ricketts with Dr. Stuff were referring in the last show to Captain Slick's use of the word salubrious. To help you understand English better, elderly Jaguar pilot, the word elderly is an adjective and refers to the noun Jaguar, which is now obsolete and retired. Whereas old curmudgeon, old definitely just accurately describes the curmudgeon. This is Hong Kong Nigel wishing you all safe travels. Burn. (laughs) Ah, It's all semantics. All semantics. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Wow. Uh, that was a very humorous finish to what was uh, a startling set of statistics. Mm-hmm. Terrifying, really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the situation definitely does not sound good. Um, 
Uh, I mean, uh, whilst things might be, you know, anecdotally looking up in the States, there are definitely places where our fellow pilots are still suffering appallingly. Yeah. I think a lot of that is because here, because we have such a big domestic market that kind of shields us, I think, from a lot of, I mean, almost every other country in the world, comparatively, the domestic situation is quite a bit smaller and percentage, you know, percentage wise and actual numbers wise. So Absolutely. I mean, we've got a, we've got a tiny domestic market uh, in the United Kingdom. All are flying into the equivalent of the United States would be into Europe. That's mm. all international and every single country has its own regulations and its own current lockdown situations. So, it just makes it non impossible. And uh, Hong Kong, and I just didn't realize that they had just so many aircraft uh, on the ground and they were suffering so badly. It doesn't surprise me with Nigeria, to tell the truth, but Hong Kong has already been a very sw switched on place. But, uh, you know, it just appears to be so isolated. Mm -hmm. Well, as. Lane Street said, nice job, Nigel. Very clear and informative. Uh, let's move to uh, number two. Uh, Captain Peter says, hi, crew. Well, aren't we all just lever, uh, clever little Vegemites? <laughs> you, so Captain Jeff. Hmm? adjectives to describe all of us. These <laughs> passive aggressive. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is that a, is that a, a complimentary thing? I'm not thing? sure if that's a compliment or an insult. Yeah. I'll just take it as neutral uh, yeah, and move I on. I think Vegemites uh, probably refers to uh, an Australian advert for their, one of their favorite sandwich spreads for kids. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so I guess if you like Vegemite, then he was complimenting Compliment? us. If you don't like it, then it's the opposite. Okay. Uh, well, it's not like Marmite, which is, you know, a bit of love and hate. Vegemite's much nicer. Oh, is it? That's a lot less offensive than Marmite? Yes. Okay. Yes. But oh. don't forget, it's all made from the dregs of beer production. That's, that's all you needed to say for me. Sounds good. <laughs> all right. Um, so you, Captain Jeff, to the 717, Captain Dana to the 737, and me circling back to the beginning, back on the 747. Aviation is never boring for good and bad. Some brief comments on episode 457 and 458, if I may. Regarding the ATP crosswind landing, there was some discussion regarding the use of or lack of rudder, which led to departing the runway. The video showed the aircraft correctly aligning with the runway and touching down. However, due to the lack of upwind aileron being applied, the tricycle became a scooter. And from there on, the crew were along for the ride. Upwind aileron or crossed controls is imperative when aligning with the runway. Cross controls has fallen out of favor for crosswinds and heavy jets, especially with pod-mounted engines. However, it still has a place in the crosswind arsenal. And uh, yeah, it's still my preferred technique on an airplane with, you know, tail-mounted engines. Uh, reference mm. weight and balance systems on airplanes. The 747 has had this from the beginning. It was a bit flaky on the Dash 200 and so not trusted. However, on the Dash 400 and Dash 8F, we reference for every departure, checking the weight and maximum takeoff weight are, or I guess mean aerodynamic cord and takeoff weight. Is that what that would stand mm -hmm. for, yeah. uh, Rick Mac Tau? Uh, the that the position of the uh, of the um, uh, the concentration of the weight, the center of gravity along the okay. mean aerodynamic cord for that applies to that takeoff weight. Okay, uh, are with it. I nailed it. 
are within 3% of the load sheet figures. If not, we start asking questions. Okay. And I also, this spurred me to do a little bit more research because I did mention when we were talking about the uh, systems on the, uh, the self measuring systems on heavies like the 747. Can uh, I just stop you for a sec, Jeff? Yeah. Uh, 3%? Well, that's about 10 tons. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That'd be a. Uh, what's your max takeoff weight uh, in a Dash 8, Rick? Uh, 875,000 pounds. Well, actually, a little bit more than that, if I remember correctly. It's close. A Dash 8 fully loaded is close to a million pounds. Uh, a Dash 400 freighter is about 800,000 pounds. So a so Dash 8 is closer to 900,000 pounds off the top of my head. Okay. 26,000 pounds. Is that? Twenty-six oh, thousand pounds. That. Maybe fourteen, fifteen tons. Maybe. So he's talking about. Uh, he's saying three percent of. No, but I'm, but I'm he's, ta- he's talking. He, he's talking he, about. No, well, he he's not talking about weight itself. It's he's just talking about the position of the of the center of gravity along the along the mean aerodynamic cord. So ah, it's okay. Not, so it's not weight fine. itself. It's That's just fine. Uh, fine. position of the uh, of the CG. Ah. Okay. Anyway, um, the. I had mentioned that the I had heard that the L ten eleven had an onboard weight and balance system, and I was able to do a little bit of research. I'll put this in the show notes if you want to read about it from the Society of Allied Weight Engineers. Never heard of Love that. Society of Allied Weight Engineers. Very um, exclusive club. Yes, a very exclusive club uh, of which I'm a member uh, because you know weight is something I'm always worried about. Um, there, the abstract uh, talks about the um, the system that was um, put on the wide-bodied aircraft of the L ten eleven type, um, and um, anyway, so I uh, was I thought I was right about the fact that there was this kind of system, but they ended up taking them off the jets because they, well, I mentioned that I think it's because the uh, the actual weights were probably more than what they were kind of planning for so they decided to take it off plus the uh, system itself i think um added extra weight and cost so they decided that nah we don't need that but i could be wrong about that that's just anecdotal um let's see episode 458 news included the latest tragic accident in indonesia captain jeff i will leave the wonderful pronunciation of the airline to your expert lips (laughs) hey being sarcastic i think for further information on indonesian aviation i strongly recommend a listen to a podcast by flight safety detectives dated 16 january 2020 which is the best explanation regarding the lion air accident i've heard this is definitely my last conversion and not sure how long i can last with the pandemic restrictions at acme east the rules are changing every day the latest being that on any overnight anywhere in the world we are not allowed to leave the hotel room which can be up to seven days, and then on to the next layover and another lockdown in another hotel. On return to the home base, there is now a two-week quarantine and yet another hotel. My nose is wearing thin with the continual swab testing being done. This lifestyle is not sustainable in the long run. Keep the blue side up, Captain Peter. Wow. Yikes. Yeah, that does not sound like the glamorous lifestyle of of an airline pilot. (laughs) Alone in a hotel. Well, basically, you know, you get to your layover, you're alone in your hotel room. And then that cycle repeats itself while you're on your trip. And then when you get home, you got to go to another hotel for two weeks. And then you probably start another trip. So it just kind of never ends in a lot of testing. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty miserable lifestyle. 
I tell you, I, uh, so on the seven, six here at, uh, Acme giant, um, you have a choice of doing international flying if, if you so wish. Um, and what was it? Um, August, uh, July, August timeframe of last year, uh, I did, um, a lot of, um, far East flying over to, and in fact, I did lay over in Hong Kong, uh, a couple of times. Uh, but you know, restrictions were not as as you know as, as strict as they are now. Uh, they certainly were in in, in Australia. Uh, well, I did do a couple of um, trips uh, down to Sydney out of out of uh, Tokyo, Narita, and yeah, you you get to you get to Sydney and uh, you are greeted with the you know uh, the standard temperature check, and then uh, you're uh, you're taken to the hotel, which at the time was our our no, our uh, normal layover hotel out in um, out in um, uh, Kuji Beach, beautiful part of a uh, Sydney. Um, and so the company uh, worked out a deal with the hotel where uh, since the since flight crews were going to be stuck or basically locked up in their rooms um, for the duration of their layover, you know they they all they would all give us. Um, you know, balconies with a view to the, you know, ocean view balcony, uh, room. So it was, it was nice, but I mean, but after being in there for three, four days, uh, even the ocean view, uh, starts to you know, kind of lose its, its, uh, appeal. Uh, and then, uh, a little while later, um, a crew from another airline, um, broke hotel lockdown. And as a result of that, uh, every crew now, from I think just about every airline, at least for for, for us, for what I've heard, uh, they all stay at uh, air at uh, hotel properties uh, at the airport, and they are very very you know carefully guarded and make sure that to make sure that they're not they don't leave their their hotel rooms. And so yeah, I mean I, I don't just the way things are going right now uh, internationally, uh, it's really not optimal. It's really not. That's why. Uh, Thankfully, I've had I've had the chance to you know sh- shift my flying to doing mm-hmm. mostly domestic and uh, um, yeah, it might not be as um, you know great as it was as far as you know all the places to get to travel and the the fantastic layovers around the world. Uh, but at least you know flying domestic, I'm I'm not, I'm not stuck in some hotel. So yeah, you know. yeah, it's almost like you're either taken hostage or a prison, you know, prisoner in some way in some of these places. Owen, yeah. who is a, uh, uh, international flight attendant, a lot of our hotels are giving us one use room key. So you can only get into your room once and come out once. Wow. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. Can't That's say just awful, really isn't it? Yeah. Experienced anything like that. Hmm. Hmm. Well, just hopefully everything will start getting better and we'll be back to something that's somewhat close to normal in the future here. All right. Well, let us continue then with uh, this week's installment of the old pilots plain tales. Uh, this one, the Horsehead gang and take it away. Old pilot. The old pilots plain tales, the Horsehead gang. It was the 26th of February 1941 when Eastern Airlines Flight 21 was making its approach to what is now called Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport in Georgia. 
The DC-3 had departed LaGuardia Airport in New York, stopped briefly at Hoover Field in Washington before starting its next leg to Atlanta. It was the airline's flying procedure at the time to set the aircraft's two altimeters on different settings. One would be on QNH, showing the height above sea level, and the other on QFE, indicating height above the airfield. Since the weather wasn't good, with a low cloud base, rain and some fog, it was vital that the pilots set their altimeters correctly, as they couldn't see the ground. On board were 13 passengers and three crew members, as the four-month-old aircraft approached the Stone Mountain radio fix and received their clearance. Clear to Atlanta Tower, number one to approach. Flight 21 changed frequency and reported overhead Stone Mountain descending. They called at 1,800 feet above mean sea level over the Atlanta range station about two miles southeast of the airport and their dispatcher called them suggesting a straight-in approach. The acknowledgement was the last transmission heard from Flight 21. The airfield lies 915 feet above sea level. Out of the gloom of thick cloud through their windscreens, the pilots suddenly saw the tops of pine trees, but it was too late to pull up. They ploughed through them as the branches smashed into the left wing, shattering the navigation light. They managed to continue on for another quarter of a mile in a more or less strain-level attitude until they struck more trees on the gently climbing terrain and then impacted into a thick pine grove, which demolished the aircraft, tearing off both wings. The fuselage rolled inverted, coming to rest above the right engine. One of the passengers on board was the president of the airline. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, who had felt the first impact as a bump and had jumped up from his seat and started to move aft until the final impact threw him off his feet. He suffered grave injuries and found himself trapped by the wreckage and soaked in aviation fuel. Around him were the dead and dying and he called out into the darkness. It was close to midnight trying to offer consolation to the dying and encouraging the survivors to find help. It was nearly seven hours later as the first glimmer of dawn came when the rescuers found the wreckage. Rickenbacker was barely alive, but still conscious and in terrible pain, but so severe and grotesque were his injuries that he was left for dead, whilst the ambulance took away the living and then returned for the bodies of the deceased. When he wasn't among the survivors that arrived at the hospital, the press reported his death. They were uncomfortably close to the truth. When his body was eventually extracted and taken to the hospital, he was indeed left for dead, and he heard the doctors telling their assistants to leave him and take care of the live ones. It was hardly surprising. His head had been crushed, fracturing his skull and smashing his face such that his eyeball was blown from its socket. His left elbow was shattered and the nerves crushed, paralysing his left hand. 
He has several broken ribs, a broken hip socket, and two breaks in his pelvis, damaged nerves in his leg, and a broken left knee. Afterwards, Rickenbacker would describe his terrible experience with vivid accounts of his mental state as he approached his end, emphasising the supreme act of will it took to stave off dying. However, he was better off than the eight who did die. Five passengers, including a senator, and all three crew. The Civil Aeronautics Board found no evidence of aircraft failure and concluded that the DC-3 was being flown at too low an altitude. The captain had descended his aircraft to a height of 39 feet below that of the airfield and as a result contacted the trees which brought it down. The reason for this error was discovered when the altimeters were inspected and it revealed that the one they used to gauge their height at that point on the approach was misset by nearly an inch of mercury, putting them at least 800 feet lower than they should have been. No explanation for this error could be found, but as Rickenbacker had said... I have never liked to use the word safe in connection with either Eastern Airlines or the entire transportation field. I prefer the word reliable. Edward Vernon Rickenbacker would eventually recover, but after learning a little about his life, I wasn't surprised. He was a man who rose from very humble beginnings to become a famous racing driver the United States' greatest fighter pilot of World War I and would be awarded the Medal of Honor before becoming the head of one of the state's most successful airlines. Indeed, his lifetime of achievement is, in truth, way too hard to fit into a 20-minute tale. Born of Swiss immigrants in 1890, his father was a wage labourer for breweries and street-paving gangs. His mother supplemented the income by taking in laundry. Eddie grew up as a street kid, but he helped the family out by earning nickels by delivering papers, setting pins up in the bowling alley, and selling stuff he scavenged to the junk man. He worked on the family plot, growing vegetables and looking after the animals, but he used a little of his own money to buy Bull Durham tobacco and was the leader of sorts of the local gang. With the others of the Horsehead gang, he smoked, played hooky and got a reputation as a bit of a hooligan. He was trouble-prone, falling in front of a streetcar, tumbling twelve feet into an open cistern, flying a bicycle from the roof of a barn, smashing street lamps, falling from a quarry cart and slicing his leg wide open. He had a sensitive side, though. He yearned to turn his love of art, in particular painting watercolours, into a career, but he also had a love of machines. His childhood came to an abrupt end when his father got into an argument and was struck in the face with a shovel. After six weeks in a coma, he died. Along with his older brother and sister, Eddie felt obliged to help replace his father's income. He dropped out of school and worked full-time at a variety of jobs. One was with Oscar Lear Automobiles, and at the same time he took an engineering correspondence course. 
The chief engineer took the young teenager under his wing and brought him to New York to compete as his riding mechanic in the Vanderbilt Racing Cup. Sadly, an accident and car problems meant they didn't even make the start line, but within a few years, Eddie moved with him to another company as chief testing engineer. Within a few short years, Rickenbacker was demonstrating cars in big motor shows and troubleshooting problems. At 18, he described himself as Salesman, demonstrator, mechanic, chief engineer, experimenter. In short, the whole ball of wax. This led to an invitation to compete in races. Indeed, he was the relief driver for the very first Indianapolis 500, helping his boss take 11th place. Before long, racing was his full-time occupation, and he worked for a number of teams. Not always keeping to the safety regulations, he was given a 12-month ban, but success followed, and he was soon a national racing figure, earning the nickname Fast Eddie. 1915, he finished the season fifth amongst all racers, with three top podium finishes, and the following year, he rose to third place. Then he signed with the British Sunbeam team and travelled to Britain to compete. Deep into a four-year war, he was kept under surveillance by Scotland Yard as a potential spy following a ridiculous story by the LA Times calling Eddie the disowned son of a Prussian noble. Staying in the luxurious Savoy Hotel, he watched the Royal Flying Corps fly from the nearby Brooklyn's aerodrome, and he yearned to join them. He had friends in the world of aviation, such as Glenn Martin, the aircraft maker, and Townsend Dodd, who became General Pershing's aviation officer. However, his working-class background held him back, and his efforts to form an aero squadron out of racing drivers came to nothing. Unexpectedly, in 1917, he was invited to go to France to drive for General Pershing as a sergeant first class, and he soon found himself chauffeuring officials around Paris and the Western Front. It was whilst fixing a car for Lieutenant Colonel Billy Mitchell that he hoped to get his chance to become a pilot, but it was a different encounter with a Captain James Miller that led him to become the chief engineer at an American military flight school he was starting. Eddie bargained and agreed to come, if he could have the chance, to learn to fly at the French flight school near Toul first. His perseverance paid off, and, now promoted, he arrived at the new U.S. Air Services Flight School with 25 hours in the air. Rickenbacker didn't fit the mould of the average aviation cadet. He resented their cocky college attitude, and they resented his rough manner and speech. He stood in the back at classes, but absorbed all that he could, and then, in between his duties as chief engineer, he stole into the air to practice. As his experience grew, he finagled his way into gunnery school, and then completed his advanced training under the tutelage of the famous Raoul Lefbry. 
Finally, he made his way into the nascent 94th Pursuit Squadron, the Hat in the Ring Gang. Only two weeks later, Rickenbacker shot down his first enemy aircraft, and it only took him another month to get his fifth and become an ace, as well as being awarded the French Croix de Guerre. This success did not mean the end of his difficulties, however. Several times he almost fired on friendly planes. He nearly crashed when the fabric on his Newport's wing tore off in a dive and his guns kept jamming whenever he went in for the kill. Illness kept him on the ground for a while, but when he returned, he was picked to command the squadron. Rickenbacker's talent as a leader came to the fore, and his men soon realised that he was a guy who would stick with them to the end. He led his unit to success after success, and his personal count of victories grew as well. He flew more patrols and more hours than any other pilot in the service, and in the final six weeks of the conflict, flying his much-loved Spad 13, he brought down 15 enemy aircraft, bringing his total to 26, making him the United States Ace of Aces. When hearing of the imminent armistice, he flew over no man's land, and later wrote, I was the only audience for the greatest show ever presented. On both sides of No Man's Land, the trenches erupted. Brown uniformed men poured out of the American trenches, gray-green uniforms out of the German, and from my observer seat overhead, I watched them throw their helmets in the air, discard their guns, wave their hands. By the end of the conflict, he had earned eight Distinguished Service Crosses, the Legion of Honor, and would later receive the Medal of Honor, the United States' highest and most prestigious military decoration. He returned to the States a hero and was met at the Waldorf Astoria by hundreds of friends and admirers and by the Secretary of War. He accepted a book deal worth $25,000 and a speaking tour for $10,000. He retired a major, but always preferred to be called Captain Eddie. The world was his oyster, and his name so well known that to have it on a letterhead could almost guarantee the success of a venture. He took part in promotional flights, crossing the country several times in Junkers Larsen, JL-6s and DH-4s, but not without a few problems. He suffered seven crashes, eight forced landings and nine near misses. He diversified into motor car manufacturer, starting the Rickenbacker Motor Company, marketed as a car worthy of its name. He also purchased the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and became the Vice President of Sales for the Aircraft Corporation of America and then Vice President for Governmental Relations at American Airways. However, his most lasting association was as the President of Eastern Airlines. He led his company through great changes to civil aviation as Eastern moved from a piston-powered fleet of Constellations, DC-4s, 6s and 7s into the jet age, not forgetting that a war intervened. After initially supporting America's isolation from the European conflict, he became openly pro-British, saying that he was inspired by 
England's heroic resistance to relentless air attacks. And saying that... Should these gallant British withstand the terrific onslaught of the totalitarian states by the summer of 1941, it is my sincere conviction that by that time, this nation will have declared war. Bailey recovered from the awful injuries he suffered in the Atlanta DC-3 crash, Rickenbacker undertook a tour of Europe and the Pacific Theater on behalf of the Secretary of War. It was during this mission that the B-17 he was flying in became lost and was forced to ditch in a remote part of the Central Pacific Ocean. For 24 days, he, his companion on the tour and the eight crewmen floated in life rafts with little chance of survival. Several of them were injured, and when the food ran out after only three days, they struggled to stay alive. Rickenbacker assumed a leadership role, encouraging and browbeating the others to keep their spirits up, but one man died from drinking seawater out of desperation. They lived on sporadic falls of rainwater and occasional birds and fish that they caught. The Navy gave up the search, and again Eddie was declared dead. Finally, they split up and rowed their fragile rafts off to discover islands that would eventually lead them to a radio. They all survived, but were in terrible condition, suffering from hypothermia, sunburn, dehydration and near starvation. The story of his ordeal has been used as an example for Alcoholics Anonymous when the first of their twelve traditions was formulated. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon unity. In the 50s, Rickenbacker's time with Easton came to an end as its fortunes declined and he finally resigned from the board at the age of 73. A few years later, he died from a stroke whilst visiting Switzerland. His body was laid to rest in his hometown, and his eulogy read by Lieutenant General Jimmy Doolittle. Although his name lives on in halls of fame, awards, airfield names, on postage stamps, and as a hero of a great nation. Another brilliant one. I didn't have, I had no idea that Rickenbacker had that kind of a history. Obviously. Uh, it was a, a fantastic story uh, once I got into it. Uh, I, I realize he's a very much an American hero, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, only part of it as uh, the uh, the Ace of Aces until um, uh, Ira Bong, uh, I've told his story, um, scored, I think, 40. Uh, kills in the Second World War, flying mm-hmm. his uh, his lightning. Um, but uh, Rickenbacker, from his beginnings in life, uh, just a fantastic character. I I would love to have known him because you know you when someone dies, you only hear the good bits, don't you? I I would love to have heard an all. Uh, all warts and all, or you know, a warts and all description of what he was really like. Uh, he was certainly a man who was willing to um, push and push for success, and of course, he achieved it. Brilliant. Yeah, and yeah, never um, 
never second guess or or think that he's not going to come back because it sounds like every darn time he was like there. Oh yeah, they uh, Lane in the uh, chat room said uh, that uh, he was. Uh, like he was part cat, so I think <laughs> yeah, he had exactly. uh, <laughs> he had quite a few lives, didn't he? <laughs> wow, what a character! It almost makes Absolutely. me want to go and do some more research about that um, that crash uh, at Stone Mountain, which is here in the Atlanta. Yeah, area. it wasn't actually far from the airfield. I, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a bit surprised it took him. I think because it didn't catch fire, uh, and it was the in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. uh, and they didn't weren't sure in those days. <laughs> where the hell it was mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was only about three or four miles from the boundary of the airfield mm. so uh yeah absolutely and and of course i had no idea that uh they had radio beacons uh around um uh stone mountain yeah that sounds dangerous nigel's suggestion in the chat room yeah, I yeah, saw. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nigel, uh, that'd be, yeah. I think yeah. you should write each other's eulogies. <clears throat> Absolutely. <laughs> would be very interesting. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When um, I've had the experience, um, I'm not going to say whether it's a good experience or bad experience, of being with these two together. And uh, it's interesting. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. I can, I can recommend. Uh, we do go <laughs> a back a, a long way. <laughs> well, Liz is saying it's great, but you know, yeah. Okay. Ah, <laughs> Jeff's okay. experience was otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, did he? Okay. Um, Liz is saying that at your uh, retirement luncheon that Nigel kind of did a eulogy there for you. Uh, he has certainly had some rude words to say. Yes. <laughs> 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 I believe it. All right. Oh, Absolutely. Well, now, he's a man who uh, can speak very well because mm-hmm. I've seen him uh, address huge uh, auditoriums of uh, uh, pilots when he was the head of the Hong Kong uh, Air Cross Association, the president. And during their troubled times, uh, uh, he was addressing them. And uh, he's a man who certainly knows how to speak very well. Yes. Wonderful. Okay. Um, let's continue on, see if we can knock out a couple more pieces of feedback. And Liz, if there are any in particular that you think we should definitely get mm, out of yeah, the way for I this just, one, just let me know. Yeah, I'll have a look. Okay. I'll have a look. Um, in the meantime, while she does that, I'm going to start with uh, number three, Maggie. Uh, she says, I'm assuming it's a she, Maggie. I think you need music for this one. You'll see oh, a little bit. Oh, do I need the, the first music? paragraph there? Oh. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, it's not it falls Ivor or... Torque, Tarquin, Tarquin or Ivor <laughs> or Torque, not even Torque. <laughs> what is that? Isn't that, isn't that a town somewhere in the UK? <laughs> I think so. I am. Now look, I I'm, I'm sick <laughs> in Torquay, many ways. Yes. Torquay. Torquay. Okay. All right. Let's just uh, pretend that I haven't said anything in the last minute. This is from Maggie. Dear Jeff, definitely not the bearded wonder. My name is Maggie. I write to you via the good office of Mr. Ivor McDonald. What a guy. I'm a cat along with my fellow feline smudge. We don't have access to electronic mail services, but Mr. Ivor has made his iPad available to us. We write to you with a small complaint. But before that, let me explain the animal APG relationship. 
We, many cats and dogs, also listen to your podcast. We quite like the name Dogcast, but we can't have everything now. And what do you humans think we do whilst you drone on about airplane stuff? Some of you lot watch the live broadcast, then for some unimaginable reason, listen to the published podcast. Well, we have to listen to it as well. Many dogs and cats live with your listeners and contributors. Do you hear that in the background? No. Okay, good. Apparently the people um, that are painting our front porch are here, but they're using the the uh, water the in cat. the back to like the wash cat. all of the... Uh, <laughs> spray painting the door with the cat. <laughs> spray painting with the cat, no. Um, <clears throat> so I just hear this loud water sound. Okay. Um, continuing on. Where did I stop? Um, Producer list. The cat. Well, I know that, but where in this? Sorry, I wasn't. I was doing listeners and contributors. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm going to start here. Just we, carry on. We write to you with a small complaint, but before that, let me explain the animal APG relationship. We, many cats and dogs, also listen to your podcast. We quite like the name Dogcast, but we can't have everything now. What do you uh, humans think we do whilst you drone on about airplane stuff? Some of you lot watch the live broadcast, then for some unimaginable reason, listen to the published podcast. Well, we have to listen to it as well. Many dogs and cats live with your listeners and contributors. Producer Liz is betting in a new mutt with the vastly experienced Jack. Like Liz, we like to promote good feline-canine relationships, and long may it continue. Now to the reason for this communication. On a recent show, we were all delighted to hear you cover the story of the poor cat, the cat accidentally, allegedly, trapped in the stored aircraft, Well, it turned out to be a good news story. Charming and heartwarming. Everything turned out well. Cat rescued. Airline looks good and caring for performing the rescue mission. And all of us cats and dogs enjoyed the story and top-notch outcome. Let's not forget, it could easily have been a dog trapped in the aircraft. But, but, it all took a very strange turn. After finishing the story, one of your co-hosts, Nick, I think his name is, proceeded to rant about, how do I put it, uh, or the uh, potential smell left behind from our poor, unwilling aircraft prisoner. I'm not about to say it was an odorless situation, but your man, Captain Nick, seems to specialize in differing types of bodily outfall, particularly its smell, and maybe texture, and who knows what else. Anyway, we all have our little foibles. I'm not saying Nick is a weirdo or anything like that. Heavens, I'm not that sort of cat. But I do wonder what he does with his dog poop bags when he gets home from walking his lovely dogs. Let's hope it's straight into the bin and not into his secret poop odor laboratory. (laughs) Now, I'm sure you can deal with this unpleasantness internally. I understand you have an excellent human resources department. I'll leave you to continue your normally excellent broadcasting. So, I'll wish you wagging tails and contented purring cats. Maggie. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, well, Maggie. I'm so glad Maggie managed to stop licking her backside and uh, in enough to be able to write that. It's very <laughs> good. Yeah. I was going to say, thank you, Maggie. Your um, complaint has been noted, and it will be turned over to the... Um, uh, Feline and Canine Division of Human Resources of the <laughs> APG show. So Taco and Truman will be reviewing it and we'll get back to you. Yes. Never. 
I just, I just want to say that. Long attention spans. <laughs> I find it unbelievable that after uh, what uh, must have been several passes uh, walking across the keyboard, she managed to put together this uh, excellently composed uh, message. Yeah. It's just great. Absolutely. Talented, yeah. talented kitty. Very, a very literate cat. That's for sure. Very, very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A very litter box cat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You had to ruin it. Um, <laughs> you and your odors again. They're, they may be onto something here. Yeah, they might not be wrong. We're not sure. Um, let's move to 12. And this is from Seal Beach Mark. And he said, hello, Liz and the entire awesome APG crew. Uh, pardon me? Oh, okay. Uh, Liz is saying this is the why I suggested that. His, his, uh, his, a beginning or a salutation to Liz and then everybody else. <laughs> okay. Hello, Liz and the entire awesome APG crew. I realize that the month of February will almost be over when you guys do your next podcast. Yeah. In fact, it's the last it's the day last of the day. month right now, um, but it's still February. So I thought I'd take a chance that this feedback might make it into that podcast. Yay. As February is Black History Month, it reminded me of the time that once when I was working a three-day trip back in 1977, I actually flew on a 720B with Captain Marlon DeWitt Green. At the time, of course, I never realized his importance when it came to the inclusion of black pilots being hired by commercial airlines. I did some cursory Google research on Captain Green and found out that he was one of the very first black pilots to be hired. Apparently, the first one was a man by the name of David Harris at American Airlines. This was a Philadelphia layover, and of course, the cabin and pit crew got in the van. I've never heard of cockpit crew referred to as a pit crew. Um, I like that, though. Yeah, yeah, I like that, too. Kind of a NASCAR thing there. Um, Anyway, um, Seal Beach Mark, you'll remember, was a cabin crew. Um, The cabin and pit crew got in the van and we went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the cabin crew ran up the 72 stone steps leading up to the entrance. They have now become known as the Rocky Steps. And we all jumped around and held up our arms just like Rocky did. I will say Captain Green was easygoing and very professional. We exchanged the usual pleasantries and shook hands. I was glad to have met him. Best regards to all. Seal Beach Mark. And a little bit of information from Wikipedia about uh, Marlon Green, born in El Dorado, Arkansas, or uh, Arkansas, uh, Nick, if you prefer. His, uh, uh, yeah, I know where that is. Okay. Uh, his father, McKinley Green, was born in 1900, and Mary Green's future mother, Lucy, on April 10th, 1921. Okay, they talk a little bit about his family background. Um, his family moved to Lansing, Michigan, where he found work at the Drop Forge Company. And then he joined the household staff of a dent of a dentist um, dentistry group. Um, he joined the United States Air Force, where his last posting was flying the SA-16 Albatross with the 36th Air Rescue Squadron at Johnson Air Base in Tokyo, Japan. While on leave in 1957, he applied for a pilot position with Continental Airlines and was invited to be interviewed after having left blank the racial identity question on the application. He also omitted omitted pasting into the small square block provided in the upper right-hand corner of the first page of the application a picture of himself. Five other white applicants, less qualified, were hired. 
per varying sources, he either was rejected then or was hired as what would have been the nation's first African-American pilot for a major commercial airline, but was rejected after reporting for orientation. On April 22, 1963, following oral arguments uh, on March 28, 1963, the United States Supreme Court ruled in Colorado Anti-Discrimination Commission versus Continental Airlines that Green had been unlawfully discriminated against. Uh, in 64, American Airlines hired David Harris as the first Amer- African-American pilot for a major U.S. airline. We talked about it earlier. Um, following his Supreme Court victory, Green flew for Continental from 65 to 1978, initially piloting Vickers Viscounts out of Denver. He became a captain in 1966. So only one year after he um, started flying for Continental, he was uh, upgraded to captain. Uh, he died at age 80 in Denver. He was divorced and is survived by his three daughters and three sons. Um, on February 16th, 2010, at George Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston, Texas, Continental Airlines named a Boeing 737-824 after him. During his lifetime, Green was inducted into the Arkansas Aviation Hall of Fame. Very cool. Uh, yeah, interesting story. Yeah, it's great, great plane town. Uh, and thanks, Seal Beach Mark for for mentioning that uh, very appropriate, uh, especially this last day. Under the wire there, yep. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, moving on to number fourteen, uh, this is you know I haven't even listened to this, uh, Liz. This is some audio feedback from Carter regarding the triple seven United triple seven incident. So let me make sure I even have that in my. Yeah, I do. Here we go. Hello, APG crew. Good morning to everybody. Love the podcast. Just thought I'd pass on some thoughts regarding United Airlines' latest 777 debacle. I'm surprised that United kept that airplane in service for so long, especially when Boeing would have loved to have sold them new 777s with GE engines. Unfortunately, the management at United, the management at United decided that it was better to keep these old dinosaurs flying. Anyway, United announced that they would be grounded in these airplanes temporarily, most likely to the boneyard for good. I can't imagine they would ever return to service because the insurance company privately gave United an ultimatum, saying ground these or you'll lose your insurance coverage. By the way, when Continental and United Airlines merged, Continental Airlines brought almost brand new airplanes over in the merger. United brought very old, worn-out airplanes in what was touted as a merger of equals. Ha ha ha. So management was forced to ground them in all the old 75s that might still be flying, as well as anything else that's over 20 years old. And I just thought I'd touch upon the quality of non-destructive testing as far as the fan blades and hub were concerned on that 777. I would have loved to have known how many hours were on those blades and hubs. I wonder who did the non-destructive testing, or was testing done at all? Where was the engine overhauled? In the U.S. or maybe in Hong Kong? If in the final analysis of this incident, it was found that the testing facility had committed fraud for not testing the parts correctly or not at all, those people should go to jail. My final thought, this could have been a real tragedy. Imagine that the airplane went down with all aboard lost. How awful. I'm wondering if the airline would have survived. The insurance company that indemnifies United Airlines finally realizes this and its horrific exposure to poor management decisions at United. 
Yeah, I wouldn't at all be surprised if some of the senior executives at United seek retirement very soon. Love the podcast. Keep it up. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> okay. Um, as I mentioned, I had not li- had not listened to that until now. Um, I, what's your take, um, Rick, is regarding the um, the age of the jet? And we'll have to make note of the fact that it wasn't the it wasn't the jet that had the issue. It was the yeah. it was the engine. Precisely, right? We, we we talked about that at the beginning. You know, yeah. uh, engines engines are swapped out uh, constantly um, because of uh, you know you get to um, TBO time between overhaul limits and all, all sorts of things. So you take engines off and put um, you know, swap them out all the time. Um, the in a jet, really, the only part that is time limited is the fuselage itself, and that is limited to a certain number of cycles. And the cycle is, uh, you know, takeoff, climb, cruise, descent, and landing. And the reason why uh, airframes uh, air are, are, are limited to number of cycles is because as you pressurize and depressurize the airplane, uh, you are causing the fuselage to inflate and deflate as a balloon, and that over a, you know, the aircraft's um, uh, usable life uh, it, it causes, um, you know, it, it, if, if you operate an airplane past its useful life, as far as uh, cycles are concerned, you can find yourself with uh, structural issues on the fuselage, and that's not something that you want to have to deal with. Uh, but, you know, I personally have flown airplanes that are over 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, with with no problems whatsoever, and as long as the maintenance is done correctly, uh, then it it really shouldn't be an issue. He did mention uh, non de- non destructive testing and um, the uh, where this engine was overhauled, and obviously, certainly that's something that uh, the NTSB is going to pursue, and they have to going to have to get to the bottom of what happened. Uh, but going back to the age of these airplanes, I mean, you have, you have, uh, DC, well, not DC tens, MD tens now, which are DC tens with the, uh, avionics conversion, MD 11 avionics conversion. Yeah. That great fly for uh, on my 717. Exactly. Um, that fly for, uh, another, um, uh, you know, household package delivery airline. And those airplanes have been around for, you know, upwards of 40 years. And so it's not really an issue with the age of the airplane. It's an issue of uh, with the uh, with the maintenance uh, that was performed on that engine, and it really goes back to tracking down what happened. And certainly, the the the, the ball was dropped. Now it's a it's a it's a question of finding out how that happened and keep it from happening again. Um, so, and in the general aviation world, um, there's a lot of old aircraft out there, and they're all well-maintained, and they fly great. I routinely fly aircraft that are over 50 years old, even, and not an issue, as long as the maintenance done, things that need to be changed and kept up are, you know, all that's being taken care of. Well, if anybody's exactly. followed yeah, my career, <laughs> no, <laughs> I have never, I don't think I've flown anything that is less than 25, 30 years old, <laughs> except for maybe the airplane yeah. I'm on, on now. And that one's getting up there too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just because they're old doesn't mean that they're pieces of junk and unsafe. Uh, 
Oh, no, yeah. but I just happen to like uh, internet connectivity and good mood lighting. Oh, sure. Oh, and I, a I nice think we all bar. appreciate that. Yeah, sure. That, <laughs> as far as safety is concerned, you know, I, I think it's, um, I don't think you can make the direct comparison. Now, regarding the non-destructive um, in, um, inspection, uh, there is an article that we've included in the show notes regarding our news item on the 777 that talks about the facility at Pratt and Whitney in East Hartford, where they, that's where they inspect these special hollow fan blades and that area where the um, metallic fatigue had occurred. And the fact that some of the people hadn't been properly trained on exactly what they were supposed to be looking for with the, whatever testing techniques they were using. And so, and they were getting so far behind with, um, with the backlog of making all these inspections, they were supposed to send some of their people to get more training on how to do these inspections properly, but they couldn't afford to let them go and get that because they were so backlogged. You know, it was a uh, uh, catch-22 kind of thing, I think. But uh, that article, again, is um, in the show notes, and you can read up about that and, you know, where maybe some of the fault may lie when it comes to the fact that some of this uh, wasn't caught by the uh, inspections in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and again, I mean, these, these, these blades are, you know, they have individual serial numbers. And so everything is, 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 you know, you, you can trace everything back to uh, even the batch of metal that they, uh, <laughs> that they were, uh, you know, formed from. So it's, uh, they'll get to the bottom of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then again, it, it goes to, it goes to making sure it doesn't happen again. But like I said, like, you know, like, like we know every aviation accident or incident, it's, it's not, it doesn't have a single cause. It's a, it's a chain of events that lead to, uh, to the accident or incident. And so, um, but they'll get to the bottom of it. Absolutely. But again, airplane age has nothing to do with it. Okay, um, eighteen. Larry and Stephen, they both sent us feedback in uh, regarding the same topic: ozone risks. Um, this first from Larry. Crew, here is a little paper regarding ozone lists. Quite fascinating. You should have Doctor Steph read some of the salient parts. As a bonus, pass. She could. Yeah, well, she hasn't had any <laughs> IPAs, so it's not going to be that interesting. Um, she could discuss. Um, Oh, wait. Shoot. I thought I was already. Uh, She could discuss Delta P. There we go. And got to figure out a better way to do that. Um, Delta P and urinary or urinary uh, for Captain Nick. Metabolite, metabolite (laughs) levels. Why do I get a special pronunciation? Metabolite levels. The way you say urinal, (laughs) urinal. I'm thinking, what? What does he say? Um, urinary metabolite levels of, oh boy, pyrethroid? I'm not coming to save you this time. Well, come on, yeah, Steph. You know pyr- how to pronounce that. I don't know how to pronounce no? that. That's some sort of organic oh, chemical compound oh, in pyroth- um, pyrethroid. Pyrethroid. It's not, not parathyroid, which is a different thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Urinary met- metabolite levels of P uh, invest insecticides in flight crew after an aircraft is disinfected. Honestly, each episode gets better than the next one, except for this one. We've regressed a little bit. Sorry, um, <laughs> Larry. <laughs> Talons, Douglas, he says. And so uh, he has a um, link to this PDF about risk to ozone and ozone-derived oxidation products and commercial aircraft. And it's just great reading if you guys are having trouble uh, falling asleep at night. I, I recommend that you, you read that. 
And uh, Stephen uh, Ivy also uh, contacted us and said, hey, crew, was listening to the show the other day and heard some questions about ozone restrictions for the CRJ. And yes, we do have them. It's actually a memory item. I've never had an issue or encountered a problem with it probably due to the 200 not getting up to the 30s very often. I've included some information from the CRJ manual if you wish to take a look. Take care. So, yep, um, from his manual ozone concentration, airplane operations are prohibited on routes where ozone concentrations will exceed the following limits. 0.25 parts per million by volume, sea level equivalent, or any time above flight level 320 and 0.1 parts per million by volume, sea level equivalent, time-weighted average during a three-hour interval above flight level 270. Wow, that's a memory item. Um, let's see, data to determine flight altitudes. and So I guess it's a real thing here. That, uh, and they have a table here about um, the ozone at um, uh, certain latitudes during certain months of the year. Obviously, ozone is worse when the... I guess the, uh, the, the, the tropopause is lower, which would be in the mm-hmm. cooler months. And the higher latitudes would be more susceptible to it than the mid-latitudes. Um, wow. I, I, we maybe sort of take back what we said about the routing that we saw and talked about. No, I'm still going with him <laughs> wanting to fly over his mom's house. Well, that's a better story for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, at least it's, you know, something in the realm of possibilities that could happen yeah. if there's interesting yeah. routing going on. Interesting. I just love it how none of this applies to freighters. You know, they just don't care about us. <laughs> well, like, it's just <laughs> a flight crew in there. Who cares? Let them yeah. just fly the dog boxes. Shut up. Exactly. Boxes aren't complaining. Yeah. You yeah. can't complain either. Fly them and be happy for it. <laughs> I suggest number 15 be your last one if you want to do some others between, but 15 should be your last one. Okay. Um, I think... Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and, um, well, I'll do, um, 11 really quickly because we've, yep, that's fine. um, yep. we've talked about this before and let me, uh, share the screen. Uh, this is from Chet Casper and, uh, and at least once before, maybe more, we've talked about this, uh, video that was taken at O'Hare, um, international airport. Um, oh, I don't know how long ago, but, uh, it was a while back. And it's a uh, video of a uh, FedEx, uh, beautiful. Um, is this the MD-11 or the MD-10? Um, That's an MD-10. That's one of those 40-year-old uh, airplanes we are yeah. just talking about. Oh, I can't believe everybody ancient. better move out of the way. It's going to fall out of the sky. Ancient. Oh, no. It's ancient. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, those wheels are probably going to fall off. <laughs> um, so it's lowering um, the gear. All the... All the blades and the engines are coming at loose. <laughs> and it's coming down. Oh, there's coming a down. cargo door opening. <laughs> there's a fish in there. Oh, there All goes the fish are falling out. Thanks, Liz. Somebody's picnicking on the runway. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't. We'll have to freeze frame that and go back a little bit. But I, we saw some people picnicking on one of the taxiways. Um, excellent anyway um yeah so uh he he uh, sent this in he says um the the maker of this video questioned that the fedex pilot lowered their landing gear a bit late i'm curious what do you think i mm, yeah i i maybe it's really hard to tell exactly how high because of the camera and the zoom level and everything else what do you guys think i timed it 
Yeah. I reckon he was just uh, putting the gear down as the GPWS uh, <laughs> too low gear yeah. warning came on. Okay. So, yeah. That's, that's what I reckon happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'd yeah. say that, yeah, they probably maybe waited a little bit too long. Oh, what's that thing? A little bit. Saying, oh, should bit. probably put the gear down. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. the guy was a former uh, uh, space shuttle pilot. So uh, <laughs> yeah. they put the gear <laughs> down. That at that, dragon to yeah. last no, no, no. Exactly. He forgot you know, that you, he you has it, engines that he can actually go around with. Yeah. Uh, you put the gear down on the shuttle about the, you know, about 300 feet, whereas you're doing the, 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 the you're deep in the flare maneuver. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but but seriously, I mean these these uh, yeah I've seen this a couple of times and uh, no it's, it's certainly certainly put down a little uh, later than it should have been. Uh, it used to be that the 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 landing gate for landing in uh, in visual meteorological conditions or VMC used to be 500 feet and uh, for landing in instrument conditions was a thousand feet. Now I think just about every airline, at least in the states that I know of. Them, um, their landing gate is now a thousand feet. So what, by that, what that means is that by a thousand feet, you have to have, you, know, you have to be fully configured for landing with all the checklists done and then just focus on, um, on the That's last up. Your stabilized yeah. approach criteria. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so, and, and certainly this, uh, this, this, this does not, uh, doesn't appear you know, to, doesn't appear to be stabilized, yeah. uh, I do believe they, they the uh, this crew was uh, became uh, very famous because of this uh, video here. Well, so, I uh, oh. <laughs> I think it's just <laughs> Who because they that. <laughs> I, I think it's just because they're freight dogs. I mean, that's this is this is normal. Ops. Rules are different, right? Yeah. Rules yeah are well, different. yeah. That, see, what happened is that they read the uh, the report about the uh, the ozone uh, thing. They were, and, they were uh, actually the fact that they're done apply to us. To, exposed to ozone on that flight. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. so that's that's. I think um, I'm with you there, Steph. I think that's what happened. <laughs> Ah, so they got some unwanted attention, is what you're saying? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I think a little carpet dance came after that, oh, but uh, yeah. Hey, you uh, you plane spotters out there, stop taking pictures and videos of us. Getting us in trouble. Look quite right. Just keep that one for your yeah. If it looks like a little close or bad, then don't publish that one. <laughs> Okay, that's funny. Funny you say that because, <laughs> but, but that is that is something that uh, I mean, you know that certain certain places. I I remember when flying the flying the especially flying the Dreamlifter, you knew that you had a crowd wherever it is that you went, even uh, obviously even even at, at at Payne Field where there's actually a museum right next to <laughs> uh, to Dream uh, uh, Dreamlifter operations, and there's a terrace of people watching and when you take off out of nagoya there's a terrace of people full of people watching the airplane so you're you're being looked at Mm -hmm. very very closely and so uh just you know do do things the right way and not do things the right way not because you're being looked at but because it's a safe way to do and that's the way you know procedure uh, exactly uh, you know that's our motto at apg exactly right so (laughs) we don't always get it but we try for it anyway um last one here 15 christopher Uh, Hello all, not one to send in corrections, but when calling helicopter pilots dummies, Nick had the term for balloon pilots incorrect. They are technically referred to as ballast. (laughs) 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 Thanks for all the entertainment. See Adam Helmer, commercial pilot, CFI candidate, attorney, counselor at law. I like this brand. You can tell some lawyer jokes too. He's a lawyer. Yeah, uh, oh, and yeah. what's more, he can defend himself. So that's that's right. Right. Yeah, <laughs> So don't even well bother done, to, to write in you um, balloon uh, ticks that would uh, 
Grant and others call themselves. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. They'll, they'll lose. Yeah. They'll lose whatever argument they're trying to. Yeah. <laughs> we love all of you regardless Excellent. of what you're flying or riding in absolutely okay that's going to wrap it up for the to, for today um thank you for bearing with us again and bearing with the delay and actually getting this thing recorded and uh yeah we uh we do appreciate you all for for everything that you do to help make this show what it is whether you think it's good or bad <laughs> so um we have um, a website where you can find more about the Airline Pilot Guy show, the crew, the community, um, more about the plane tales. We have a uh, APG library. Our uh, librarian, Tiffany, um, takes care of that. Um, and much, much more. And that's at AirlinePilotGuy.com. And we also have different ways to send feedback, one of which is to use the contact page at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Uh, contact us. Or you can send your feedback to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. If you'd like to send audio feedback, which we love because we love hearing everybody's voice, uh, you can uh, record something on your phone or whatever device you're using, attach it to the email, and again, use that email address, feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. And we're also on social media. If you want to kind of figure out what we're doing and when we're going to be recording and when a new show is published and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's the place to keep up to date with all the last minute changes such as occurred this week. So Twitter's probably your best bet for that. You can head over to twitter.com where we are at APG crew. Um, you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And sometimes I re, uh, post Nick's wonderful artwork over on the Instagram where we are also APG crew. Yes, that's always one of the highlights of the show. And yeah. Another quasi-social media platform is Slack. And if you're a slacker, you're going to love this. And uh, our good friend and community member, Hillel, is the one that uh, takes care of managing that. And let's see if we can uh, see if he's with us today. Here's some water. There he is again in the back. Hey, Hillel! Can you help us out with Slack? Let us know how to join. Okay, but I'm dripping wet. That's okay. Just take your time. Don't use all the towels this time, please. Okay. No, no. Keep the towel on. Keep the towel on, please. Oh, gosh. Okay, sit down right here and tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Um, hello, you know that that's that's my robe. You know the one that has the the pilot stripes on it. Okay, yeah. Hang that back. Up. I keep flushing, but it's still in there, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> the robe? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I played the wrong sound effect. <laughs> Wasn't expecting Works that one. Perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's that's, 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 that's it. Yeah, well, I love it. With that. 
<laughs> we we would also like to add a big round of applause for our awesome producer director, control room extraordinaire, Liz Piper in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thank you, Liz, for all the work that you do behind the scenes. Without your help, gosh, who knows <laughs> what a mess this would be. We appreciate all the work you do. And uh, with that, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. And we'll see you next time. Be good. Bye, everybody. Good day. Started APG. I opened doors for little old ladies. I helped them to their seats. Airline pilot guy, I fly America. Oh, airline pilot guy, he can't land in heavy fall. I got no friends cause I'm always flying. I just don't have the time. I can land this old plane. I can land it just fine. Airline pilot guy, I fly America. Oh, airline pilot guy.